Hi, this is Max Brooks, the writer of World War Z and the upcoming book Devolution, and you are listening to Without Your Head. creature creator of the eco horror film strange nature and you are watching without your head all right and welcome to the station of decapitation without your head i'm nasty neil i'm treacherous trista right and we did not give him a cool name but he has a cool name anyways um, we have uh, david bigelow on the line from making the monster and a lot of other cool things it's cool to have you here oh thanks very much i'm uh, really excited to be on the show very good if you did have a cool name, would you, is there any D word we could add to it? Dangerous Dave, maybe? Deadly Dave? <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll think about it. Um, sure. Sounds good. Let's, uh, right. I'm yeah, sure I by know. the end of the process, we'll have something. So you're currently, uh, you were at Jaws Fest this weekend. Well, we were, we're here at, um, on Martha's Vineyard and, uh, the actual Jaws Fest or any of these events are no longer happening. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the virus canceled, unfortunately the ability to have a reunion, which was going to come today here on the vineyard uh, or yesterday rather. And uh, Joe Alves was going to be out here signing his new book with Greg Nicotero. And there was going to be a new exhibit at the Martha's Vineyard Museum. But unfortunately that was closed because of the virus. So no events here on the Island really to speak of in terms of any, you know, I think many cities can attest to that being what their schedules look like now too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you're on Martha's Vineyard. You said you're saying that before we went live. There's a lot of seals out there, and I saw on Facebook that like uh, there's like shark warnings. Yes, yeah, we definitely are getting more shark warnings here. Uh, there's signs now at every beach uh, on the South Shore that says, you know, swim at your own risk. There are great whites in these waters. 
nice little picture of a, you know, a 12 foot great white, you know, looking intimidating. So it's a problem here. It's unfortunate because I grew up on these beaches and was never afraid and nobody ever had this problem. But because of the shark problem, since the seal population exploded on Cape Cod and the islands, this is where we find ourselves. Yeah, which is obviously it's unfortunate, but it is a weird coincidence that we're here to talk about making a monster. Yes, no, we we don't we don't uh, shy away from admitting there's a little bit of life imitating art and so forth going on lately. So it's yeah, it's all very surreal in some ways. Yeah, and that's uh, for people who don't know, you were uh, an extra or a background uh, actor in in the original Jaws. That's correct. I was, uh, I, so I grew up here um, in the 70s, uh, came here around 73. And so 74, the film Jaws came to Martha's Vineyard and Universal Studios took over the whole island, basically, or the way it looked to most people, um, and, uh, and started using locals and casting and everything like that. My drama teacher at Oak Bluffs Elementary School happened to be Lee Fierro, who plays Mrs. Kintner in Jaws. And she's the one everybody remembers slaps Roy Scheider and everybody believes it was 20 times or 30 times that she, they did that take. Um, it was a lot, but it wasn't as high as a lot of people reported to be. Um, but, uh, she basically invited me and my classmates to come down to the beach on the day that they were shooting, which was early May, late April. I can't remember the exact date, but the water was not warm yet. You know, the water doesn't get warm here off the Island until really July. So we were a couple of months ahead of that and they needed to shoot these sequences, but it was a very, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting day. I'll, I'll say that. Is that what spawned your interest in Jaws or did that come like later? Well, honestly, and, and this goes for a lot of kids in 1970s. I think that, you know, with Jaws began a love affair with cinema that was really quite impressive because all of a sudden with Jaws and then Star Wars two years later, and then return, um, you know, uh, uh, all these other projects that basically, you know, Indiana Jones and, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, Jaws started this love affair of cinema with many people around the world because it was such an incredible time in filmmaking. It was a new renaissance out of the studio system and with some real auteurs like Spielberg and De Palma and Lucas and Coppola and all these other directors. So. I, I think I was just caught up in it because of timing. The fact that I was in Jaws briefly as an extra and saw what the project was like to, you know, and, and finally was terrified when it came out was really revealing to me about how movies can move you. And I think, um, you know, I became interested in the process. I didn't want to be an actor. That wasn't my goal at all. But certainly I wanted to know, know more about filmmaking and, and storytelling because here on the Vineyard, Jaws looked like it was going to be a flop. And there was all these problems with it. And we did see the shark out in the open. It didn't look scary. And that film completely seduced you into the thrill ride of Jaws, the terror that's in that. So a lot of us from the island were really surprised to see what they turned around. It wasn't just a well-made movie. It's like one of the best-made movies of the last 50 years as far as coming out from Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and creating a blockbuster film. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's credited as the first blockbuster. You know, first first summer blockbuster. Yeah, it's it's a. I think it started an industry and and making the monster the story that we're trying to tell um, is really about the fact that it made the monster movie, it made the monster career, it made the you know a lot of people. You can start with basically they made the shark that made the movie Jaws work, and our project is really reflecting you know that it, it's a monster. You know, it became the monster for many things, many directions, many careers. Uh, and we still have the blockbuster summer film today, you know, thanks to Jaws. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, you know, making the monster, if you give people an idea, you kind of explain there, but, you know, what is it going to be? Is it, it's not a feature film. It's going to be a series. Correct. So the, the current, uh, you know, we, we played around with a bunch of different formats that we wanted to try out. Feature film was an obvious contender for let's do a feature about the making of Jaws docudrama style. You know, we, we like to describe it as the Apollo 13 of the making of Jaws. You know, you saw Tom Hanks and, uh, uh, Kevin Bacon in that capsule and they played real people and we want to do the same sort of treatment story-wise for that just about the making of Jaws but we wanted to distinguish ourselves because a lot of people have seen making of Jaws stories and documentary there's probably five really good ones or ones that are more popular that people are aware of they're all documentaries they're all interviews with the crew and the you know the some of the cast and so forth and that's all very revealing but nobody's dramatized it and I think dramatization of this particular story with how incredible what happened on Martha's Vineyard was because it was more challenging than just the sharks not working. That's what's really interesting about this story. So we wanted to make this, uh, we realized that in order to fit nine, you know, nine months of production plus the huge blockbuster success of the film um, into a story, you had to do it episodically and over five, six, maybe seven hours. So um, we basically landed on a limited series of six episodes. They're going to move quickly. They're going to be very energetic because we have a lot of ground to cover, even for six hours of television for this story. And uh, it's going to basically pay tribute to what the crew did. We're not very interested in telling the same stories that a lot of these documentaries have, where Spielberg and, and uh, Chapman and, and uh, Gilmore and others who were in, intimately involved in the picture in that, you know, immediately around the camera crowd. Um, to us is not as interesting as the guys that were maybe back there painting the sets and getting the shark moved and moving the, you know, the special effects people working and climbing in and out of the shark day after day. So I think that there's a lot of stories that are both those stories and Martha's Vineyard locals who were a big part of the making of Jaws and actually in some cases saved the production uh, because of their ingenuity on the ocean that they knew how to handle and Hollywood had no clue because they had never come off the set, the set for the studio lot to do this. Um, so uh, yes, making the monster, it's going to be a, a six part docudrama series, really heart of soul of the crew and what they accomplished and how we got this film that everybody still seems to go crazy about every summer. Mm -hmm. uh, how much research did you have to do to, you know, get those stories? Well, uh, the, the thing that's really important and what we took on right away was filming interviews with the crew uh that worked on the film so we we made relationships with and and then visited uh joe alms the production designer the designer that you'll be talking to at one o'clock today um again a really wonderful guy and, and has a wealth of information about what it was like to work on jaws still to this day he's, he's, he knows all the information uh and then cal accord carl gottlieb kevin pike uh andy stone the assist the uh the, the dga trainee that was on the project out with the boats for most of the time so it was really, um, interviews are really where the, a lot of that comes from. And then there's a book called Memories from Martha's Vineyard, which is by Matt Taylor and Jim Beller, and he uh, partnered on that project. And they developed a whole chronological series of, you know, when was what shot where, um, who were the players. So the, uh, the roadmap of knowing where people were and what was going on during the shoot of Jaws is actually fairly well established. Um, but you're going to watch a story that, the characters are, are what's going to suck you in. That's our hope is that you love these characters and the moment by moment trials and tribulations of the production crew of Jaws 
their story will be exciting because it's fraught with problems and dilemmas and challenges that they have to rise above. But at the end of the day, you really love these characters and enjoy watching their stories unfold. And that's what I think any TV series, even if it's limited, they do a good job of doing. So that's our plan with making the monster. Where are you in terms of production? Because I'm excited to uh, see it when I can. I'm, I'm happy to hear you're excited to see it. It's, <laughs> it's a project we want excitement around. And I think that the more that we see the excitement, we know we're onto something here. It's the right kind of project to do. Um, you know, currently we're in pre-production development. Most uh, everybody working in uh, production studios is shut down because of COVID. And so in many ways, we're all sort of limited in our ability to respond to wanting to move things forward. Um, you know, one of the things that we're doing now, the other project that we uh, will hopefully have a chance to talk about, I think is a, a way to sort of bridge those two periods of time when we'll be back working on making the monster. But what can we do now? And what can we do to, do, to tell a positive story? So, um, yes, the answer is uh, there's no definite date of when this series is going to basically be available to the public, unfortunately. Um, and I think that most people who are smart right now are saying, really can't know until there's a vaccine available and we have a sort of a long range plan what's going to happen at that point for us as a country. Um, I think we're all just sort of trying to, you know, hold on there until we get to the place where we know what we're all doing, you know, six months from now, which is hard to see right now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the other project and that's the rebuilding of the Orca. Yes, correct. Uh, the return of the Orca project is something that has kind of been born out of serendipity because of this project, Making the Monster. Um, we acquired a boat uh, a number of years ago that was more or less going to be turned into the Orca for the sake of the television program. Because if you're going to tell the story of the making of Jaws, Orca is going to be in probably three or four episodes, you know, because so much production happened out on the ocean. And we needed the boat, so we got the boat, and we were trying to figure out exactly what to do with it, and knowing we had time that we were going to be spending waiting for the project to really, you know, materialize. And now, because of COVID, it's even farther off. So what our plan was is we created this project, Return of the Orca. Um, you can see the poster image of it uh, up there uh, that we're uh, using to sort of tease what we're up to. And the project is to create the boat, uh, recreate as, as loyalistly loyally as we can to the original. Uh, we have Chris Crawford, uh, who was the builder of the original in 1974, hired by Joe Alves. And we have Joe Alves himself, who is going to be help with art direction and work generally safely from home. We don't want him flying to Martha's Vineyard and thinking he needs to be involved at, you know, Joe's uh, advanced age. And we want him to be ability to collaborate, even if he's going to be 3,000 miles away. So, um, yeah, it's an exciting project because a lot of people and it has been gone for decades and problematically, um, you know, interestingly enough, nobody's done it yet, which is what I find interesting. It's a boat. It's not like trying to say, well, I want to build the Millennium Falcon in my backyard. <laughs> right. Well, a little harder to do the Millennium Falcon than take a boat and make it look like Orca, in my opinion, anyway. Um, so it's surprising nobody's done it to this point, but we want to bring the Orca back and we want to use it for a couple of different purposes. Um, one of the main purposes we've teamed up with, uh, Wendy Benchley's foundation. Uh, she's, she's on the board of directors. Uh, the foundation beneath the waves, um, basically is a nonprofit about marine research. It's, uh, uh, CEO and chairman, uh, Adrian, um, uh, uh, Gallagher, he's been really helpful in getting us uh, sort of started on that relationship together. 
And they want to do research from the vessel, marine research in the area for sharks and other ecology. Um, because we have a shark problem off Martha's Vineyard now in the Cape. And there was a fatality two summers ago. I hope that's the last. But the only real defense in being able to be prepared for sharks now in our waters all over this area is education. We need to be educated about when sharks feed, where they feed, what are the warning signs, uh, and understand if there's going to be a change in the, the pattern of the sharks that are there. And the other part of what the, the orca will be is going to be a, a place we want to give kids on Martha's Vineyard in a place called Camp Jabberwocky, the opportunity to get uh, free boat rides and enjoy the ocean once in a while. Um, you know, it's a, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. I feel a real connection to it, and I would really love to see you know, something good happening to the island because of the boat being there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ultimately, the, the million-dollar question of this whole thing is, can other people get on it? Of course, we're going to, you know, we want the boat to be self-sustaining. And so if we're able to basically set up as a, as a legitimate tour operation and have people be able to enjoy the orca who just love the film and want to be aboard her again, um, we want to make that available. So um, it really feels like a great confluence of both charity and support and research and enjoyment for you know people who just love the film. It was weird because I saw uh, when I was looking up about the original Orca that Spielberg had, he has a little short video where he s- talks about like someone, they just like uh, destroyed it and threw it away. Like, cause he used to come and visit it every few years. And it was kind of remarkable that someone would destroy and just toss away something, you know, from one of the most iconic films. Absolutely. I, I agree a thousand percent with you, Neil. And I think that the, um, you know, that there's a lot of people who wonder why did all these sharks get like, thrown away and you know these things from a classic film that would be almost priceless today to some people um and the orca was one of those kind creations that was um unfortunately left to you know fester in the water of a backlot lake in los angeles where the jaws ride was you know you go by and the blue tram cars and the shark would pop out of the water at you and give you a little thrill so it just that boat was basically you know left and neglected it was starting to sink a little bit in that lake and and finally the dry rotten termites got to it and they just tossed it away and uh spielberg was upset you know he used to go on the orca years after the film had wrapped he had already done close encounters and he was moving on to et and would sit on that boat and just shake yeah you just go there and like you know get the movie jaws out of his system which was so traumatic And he said that he wanted to build another one because he wants it back there. But who knows if he's got some more work to do with, you know, shaking off the emotional scars of Jaws. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty wild that, you know, all all the things he's done that, you know, that the movie would still have that effect on him. Yeah. I think that the timelessness of the film's appeal is what's so incredible. It's hard to even encapsulate that in a, a definitive statement of why. I think that there's many things to it that make the film work. I mean, as an action adventure thriller, as a family film, as a, you know, a, a collection of characters, you know, to me, Jaws is like Fargo is for North Dakota. The sensibilities of the local people of, you know, Fargo and uh, um, conveyed by the Coen brothers in that movie is so strong. And the same thing happens in Jaws. We get this real rich understanding of a local people and what they're like. And that's what it's, they, they shot so many extras from the vineyard in speaking roles. So they did get some real legitimate, you know, people from the area. Yeah, and like you said, uh, it it go it uh, you, how, what genre do you really fit draws in? I mean, some people here would consider a horror movie, but it's a you know it could be a drama, it could be you know all sorts of uh, 
different genres. And also, because um, I like to watch old Siskel and Eberts, because I grew up watching it, and I'll watch them on uh, YouTube. And it's interesting that there's so many movies, even big movies are up for Academy Awards and stuff, that you, you don't even think about at all. You never hear anyone talk about when you watch those old shows. But then there's movies like Jaws that, you know, always finds a new audience, not even just people who watch it at the time. Right. Well, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of people, you know, new generations are discovering Jaws because of their parents and other friends. But I still walking around here on the vineyard and in other places, I still see little five-year-old boys with Jaws shirts on the blue iron on looking pattern. It's still classically hilarious to know that this film is out there in such large numbers and the kids have all sort of looked the same for decades. You know, it's like there's always a five-year-old bopping around the beach with a Jaws shirt on. And has that classic poster image on it. So I, I love that that permanence that it holds, you know. Yeah. And it's come up here a bunch in the chat already about people saying, you know, watching Jaws made them afraid to swim. And I know my mom has said the same thing. Like, I remember when we were ki- when I was a kid and we'd go fishing and she wouldn't want to go because, you know, she was afraid of the water because she liked Jaws so much. And it's, uh, it's interesting that has such an effect on people. Even came up and yeah. uh, I was part of a documentary yesterday, and the and the and the the actress said that that was uh, a movie that inspired her to act, and and she doesn't like to to take. I say she doesn't like to take a bath. I'm say she doesn't like to wash herself, but she doesn't like to take a bath because she thinks of Jaws. Yeah, the, a lot of people have an irrational fear of the water after the film sits with them for a while. Yeah, it's great. How was that for you to be it? You know, I know it's not necessarily a big part, but just that you're in the movie and the movie comes out. What was that like for you as a kid? Uh, it, honestly, it was an experience that I really had no idea about what it was like at, at five years old, how many people expect to be in a film. And it was a very serendipitous, sudden thing that my parents weren't looking to get me into films or anything like that. Right. It was just an activity on the island. And my teacher, you know, Lee was really. I, I really liked her a lot and I thought that she was really sweet. So it was nice for me to know that she would be down there because I, don't, I wouldn't know anybody else. But having been in the film has been a interesting a part of, you know, realizing there's artifice in cinema. And I think that's why I got interested in filmmaking because I saw the film being produced and I was in the film, but I know that the film that I expected, like I said before, isn't the one that we got. We got a really scary, effective movie. And so in many ways, it's a, um, uh, you know, I think I felt like I understood movie making is about these kinds of tricks. What we watched on the beach was, you know, looked like a big disorganized mess of people running around and things and they would, but you realize what is, what it's there for is to get these shots for this director to make and edit an incredible film. Um, so I, but you know, I'm in the frame, I'm in the film for six or seven frames, you know, like not even a full second. So it's not something that I really feel a great deal of like, Oh, I can't, you know, can't wait to see my scene. I'm, I'm in less than a shot. <laughs> so, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a great little, you know, and I hadn't thought about it for many, many years until I met some people in Boston. Uh, John Campopiano, who is a, uh, he works actually, I work at WGBH in Boston, the PBS station. And so does he, and we work in similar areas and he just learned that I was in jaws and he brought his section of the Orca hull that he owns that Susan Murphy sold him from the vineyard. And uh, he's a huge Jaws fan. So it was just a a weird coincidence that I worked with him at the same place. And then we became fast friends. And he actually introduced me to a lot of the people that I'm working with now on making the monster and return of the Orca. Yeah. Is a return of the Orca. Is that going to also be like a, a, something people could watch or is it just going to be, you're going to make it. 
Yes, we want the so we're going to be launching our campaign um, at some point soon in a more official capacity. Uh, if anybody wants to go and sort of just be kept in the loop on that, you can go to returntothearca.com. We'll do the rest of the interview with, with the cat. Hey, David. <laughs> this is backup, David. Hello, David. David. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, very cute. Okay, he's back. You're fine. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, Dave, can you cover my back? I need to <laughs> so you probably should um, explain yes, that just, again. Your return to the return of the orca. Yeah, my apologies. No worries. Uh, the the return of the orca project. We do want to have a documentary. We do want to be able to make it so that you can actually. Guys, sorry, viewers. I, I should be more technically on my game. It's not your fault. It's okay. We had your stand-in. Great. Right. Great. <laughs> um, but did it get out? We're going to do a documentary about building the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Make it short and sweet. Uh-huh. And Neil will link all the in- info, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you can find all the information. Great. So, uh, Joe Alves, who we're going to have on, you know, in a little bit. Um, so from what I understand, he was on, he, he was on, uh, when, for all the interviews, he was there in person? Oh, for the interviews that we had for Making the Monster? Right. Yes. Yeah. So we interviewed Joe. We actually flew out to Joe's home in uh, California and conducted all of our interviews in the Los Angeles area at his house. So um, he generously offered up his place to be able to do the shoot. And uh, yeah, it was a huge help. Um, You know, stage space can be kind of expensive. So it was nice to have a place we could do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, he's obviously still very interested in Jaws and and talking about uh, the shark and then just just the making of it and everything around it. Yes, Joe is really... um, I think that first of all, he loves, uh, he loves design and he loves artwork and things that are beautiful. And he acknowledges that Jaws has a timeliness that is hard to nail down completely. Um, Jaws has everywhere Joe flies around the world. He'll tell me, you know, he's got all these other credits to his name, escape from New York, close encounters of the third kind, memorable, memorable films. And yet um, Jaws is what everybody wants to talk about anywhere. Mm -hmm. When he goes around the planet, it's always Jaws as the centerpiece conversation. So he, he gives the fans what they want. Yeah. Uh, John Campio Pian- Campo Piano, is he also, uh, is he involved in making the monster as well? Um, John, yeah. John has been involved uh, really since the beginning, the, except- the inception of the project. Um, you know, we both have day jobs that we are, are doing, um, you know, our work on as usual. So this project has, you know, over the two years it's been actively moving has been, you know, not always a full-time effort. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been able to, you know, pick up steam over time and really develop in a very deliberate way. Um, but there's a lot of other people that are involved with, uh, making the monster and and bringing it together and and seeing things happen. I couldn't do it all by myself, certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have a great team that I work with, but John will be, you know, working with me, you know, right on the inside track of the stories, uh, that we're trying to script around for the project. Mm Mm-hmm. No, and he's a big horror fan. Are you a horror movie fan? It's okay if you're not. We won't kick you off. Or I'll take that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone, for the technical problems. It's no one's fault. It's just uh... I uh, I love horror films. I love all sorts of films. I, you know, but horror films, for example, Alien to me is one of my classic 
wonderful horror films that I love. And it was very, it was, it followed in the footsteps of Jaws. So in many ways True. it was a, um, you know, I mean, I think it was pitched literally as Jaws in space. Um, I think, uh, you know, Ari Aster doing Hereditary these days and uh, Midsommar and so forth. There's some really incredible people working in horror right now that are bringing to form a scare that isn't just jump scares. You know, that really is about getting you, uh, you know, seduced into being ready to be scared and terrifying you and not just sort of like hitting you with fast moving, you know, things that you didn't expect a cat jumping out of the closet onto your chest, those kinds of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love horror films. I just, uh, I, I, I never kind of classify myself as a horror fan. You know, I just, I love great films and television shows that, you know, horror, you know, well, not in rom-coms or anything, but, you know, usually thriller, drama, horror, anything in the serious, you know, side of filmmaking. So what, what is your background in filmmaking? Oh, okay. Um, my background, you know, I started, uh, when I was in college, I decided that I was going to learn more about the filmmaking or video process because I was going to pursue it as an editor's career. Um, editing to me seemed to be one of the coolest things that you could do for filmmaking. It's because whether the film really comes together in the edit room and that part of the process I think is really exciting because you shoot for so long and you don't know what you've got sometimes until the edit room. So I learned avid editing and uh, became an intern or worked for free on films as an editor an assistant editor and finally started getting real work doing a lot of corporate and industrial stuff in the Boston area. Moved on from that into more creative ventures, working with filmmakers and trying to put together some fun projects. Uh, One of the projects was a parody of the movie Seven, where we use the seven dwarfs instead of the seven deadly sins (laughs) as an idea. And I got recognized. It's funny. It's just basically a short parody trailer, really. But the AFI, the American Film Institute, recognized it and flew us out for an award. And and it was a lot of fun. So it's you know, we got the idea. Yeah, there's some stuff that we, you know, we can put something together. People actually enjoy watching. Um, and then uh, I owned my own company and worked in entertainment, did a work on music tours, doing LED video for concerts for um, Guns N' Roses, Van Halen, um, James Taylor, uh, a number of different touring artists and really enjoyed that work. I did that for about seven, eight years, working with lighting designers uh, for tours and making video that complemented their lighting package. Um, and then got into public television and started working for the outpost of WGBH. And I'm an online editor and colorist for series like Frontline, uh, the in- investigative news uh, program, uh, Nova, the science series, American Experience, the documentary film series. So a number of different project uh, areas that, you know, I, I feel like I've got a really good now buildup of a couple of different industries and different media types. But it all comes down to knowing how to use a computer after somebody's shot great footage to turn in something that looks good and sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those skills have definitely served me well, which is now, you know, we're talking about, you know, 26 years ago, I started on the editing path. And, and now I'm more in the creative oversight, but I understand post-production. So when it comes to any of these projects getting finished, you know, I'm going to be in the editing room working with people and I know my way around that room and it'll help to get the stories done well. Um, because being the writer and creator of a project like Making the Monster and then having the post-production experience to see it through, kind of really sculpt it, I think is going to be an, an incredible opportunity for me to be able to see um, what a lot of people don't necessarily get. You know, a lot of writer-directors are not editors who understand that world. Um, uh, some of them are, but usually it's, you, uh, you know, project from the point of view of writing and directing. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, when I've talked to uh, filmmakers who are also editor, like by trade, like uh, a lot of them say, like they kind of uh, it helps them when they're they're they know what to film because they kind of edit the movie, you know, while they're doing that, while they're shooting it, or at least have you know in, in their idea what in their mind what they're gonna do. Yeah, and I think that it's funny because there's the. There's a, this uh, trope that is used in filmmaking that says, you know, there's three screenwriters in a film. The screenwriter who writes it, the director who shoots it with their own eye and now has kind of rewritten it, and then the editor who is the final writer who brings the story together in a way that, you know, the footage actually supports the mind's eye to see a project as um, great as it, you imagine it and then actually be able to shoot the things that you imagine then edit it together. So it looks just the way you thought, I think is fairly rare. You know, it's, it always matures and it always adapts into something different. Uh, AJ wants to know, uh, where can you see the trailer for, for the seven dwarves? Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't, that, that project is sitting on a desk, uh, uh, collecting shelf. I'm afraid right now I'll have to look at a way to, to share that later. Uh, I appreciate the interest for something nobody's cared to see in probably 15 years. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'm about all about it. He also asked earlier, uh, what are your thoughts on the, they always talk about, you know, a Jaws remake. If you have any opinion, you know, if they should remake it or, you know, what, what should be done with that? Yeah, I'm of the camp that says don't don't remake it. You don't need to do it. It's not a perfect film. It's a really well-made film. It's not a perfect film. And I think contemporizing it with, you know, putting, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Matt Hooper or something uh-huh. just won't be the way yeah. to go. And frankly there's you know that story has been told it's sort of like talking about remaking breaking bad don't think we needed to remake breaking bad i think we got a perfect show that we needed out of it so um yeah i think it's leave jaws alone if you want to expand the storytelling and get back into making movies that continue the storyline by all means you know there's there's plenty of brody grandchildren out there there to possibly create some more jaws stories around but uh, let the original be what it is, which I think is a perfectly great film by itself. I agree. I agree. Uh, Trista, did you have something? I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind repeating uh, where people could find you uh, uh, building the orca since you had cut out earlier. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So if you just go to, uh, you know, returnoftheorca.com. You can sign up to get on our mailing list and we'll be able to provide information as it develops. You know, you mentioned like there's already um, a documentaries about the making of Jaws. So w- when you started doing the interviews, you know, to, to make the dramatization, uh, was there anything like you yourself learned about, you know, Jaw about the making of Jaws that you, you didn't have any idea about? Yes, there's stories about the sabotage that happened on the set of Jaws, people deliberately sabotaging the production. Um, I think some people wanted to delay their progress so they'd stick around on Martha's Vineyard and continue to make money for them. Uh, I think others were, you know, just trying to be troublemakers. But there definitely was sabotage. Um, It was overcome. And, you know, there was 150 to 175 people on the crew of Jaws there at any one time with security uh, as they needed it. So, you know, they could handle some problems if they needed to, and they did. However, the, um, uh, the other examples I would share is, you know, the fact that the, you know, the Teamsters basically made everybody take their cars everywhere 
including Joe Alves, who um, basically wanted to ride his bike around the vineyard uh, and not be driven in a car. So interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll ask him about that, or maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. I, I guess. Uh, I guess it's. Uh, yeah, Joe, Joe will certainly if you if you ask Joe what is like ride his bike during the making of Jaws, he'll probably chuckle and, and say, uh, "I know what this is in reference to." <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I know it's not happening right now, but do you normally go to the Jaws Fest every year? Um, well, just um, just a point of order. The only thing is that there isn't a Jaws Fest any longer. There was one in 2005 oh, okay. and then another in 2012. Mm-hmm. And that's the only one. They haven't had them since, but they did celebrate in limited amounts the 45th anniversary of the film's release. And so there actually is a... Uh, the old Sculpin Gallery put together an exhibit of Joe's work. And oh, nice. uh, it went from the 4th till the 10th. So they did have a, um, a setup down there at the old Sculpin Gallery. And the old Sculpin Gallery was the, uh, the, the building that they based Quint's shack around. Joe saw this gallery in Edgartown and decided he would go ahead and build Quint's shack to look like it. So That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, when you're rebuilding the orca, do you start with like a a boat and then try to make it look like the orca or are you starting from scratch? Yeah. So the idea is, is that we already have a boat named Lydia and she is a, a similar boat to the orca uh, that was basically these boats are Nova Scotia lobster fishing boats, really. They're work boats. And usually they don't, they don't have such as a, a time, um, uh, a, a type, I should say, that they are really, you know, created for. Um, they, uh, they, they don't have a model and a make, per se. And so making, getting an exact duplicate of the orca is actually a, a pretty difficult task. But we have a boat that's pretty much close enough uh, to make sure that we're, we're in the neighborhood. I don't know how much of that got. I think you froze up a little. Did you, did you get most no, of that, No, I Neil? think, uh, yeah, I got all we of got it, that. I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we froze up at all on our end, so that was good. That's okay important, good yeah. excellent it's an important I'm, question i'm not but, sure because i'm seeing it here but i'm not sure how it's happening down there. okay let's say important question here is uh, uh where's the best lobster roll in your decision on uh on the cape or the islands <laughs> um there's a restaurant called nancy's uh that is in oak bluffs that does an excellent lobster roll uh, and uh, also had uh, Malia Obama work at the uh, stand when the Obamas were down here really? uh, at one point. So um, who knows? Maybe she'll be working there when you come over for your, your lobster roll at Nancy's uh-huh. in Oak Bluffs. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to give Nancy's that plug. All right, all right. Uh, I actually, I've honestly never been to Martha's Vineyard. I feel very bad about that since I live very close to it. But uh, it's probably like blasphemy to live on the uh, live on Cape. Never been to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I'm very unimpressed by you, Neil. <laughs> I know. I think now he's just he's just the, the the other times he was frozen. This time he just quit. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, uh, so what? Um, besides the orca, uh, what what are you are you working on anything else right now? Uh, well, I I uh, pretty much the um the two projects between making the monster and return to the orca have me, you know, my spare time <laughs> fulfilled pretty well. And, uh, I'm actually going to be working on another front line starting tomorrow to get on air for next week. Um, 
So, um, you know, the, the forward progress on making the monster is an ever thing. You know, we are always up to it and we're currently breaking down all six episodes into a form that basically can be, you know, we can sort of plan around. So doing that is going to be a, a better part of the rest of the summer while the boat project is going on. Um, the boat project we want to have, you know, we want the orca in the water by, you know, this fall at the latest and able to, you know, be tested and put out in the water and, and have her maiden voyage and then put her in winter storage until, you know, we get back to the following spring. And also a time when hopefully there'll be enough people enjoying the planet in a way that they don't have to run around on masks and socially distance, uh, that hopefully that that will make it possible to, you know, enjoy the boat in a better way. We just need to see what time will tell. And hopefully next spring, we're in a much better spot than we are now. Do you have making the monster cast? Do you know who are playing the roles? We have a lot of ideas and we know who we want to approach. Uh, but we are not, uh, we've not uh, really nailed down commitments. It's very far in advance. You know, I think that we're, we're at least probably, um, you know, a good a year out from any kind of production beginning. Um, but we need the time to really fully flesh out the scripts and uh, and start to secure the resources uh, because shooting here on Martha's Vineyard is going to be a challenge. It's not, you know, it, it's where they shot the original mm -hmm. and the uh, you need to work really carefully with the people of Martha's Vineyard to stage a large scale television project. Um, shooting a documentary here with a couple crew, a camera, people, sound and so forth and a few producers isn't like trying to mount a $45 million television series. So in many ways, we have, we're going to be a much larger presence, probably, hopefully, similar to the way Jaws was, but we'll, we'll try to be a lot more, you know, considerate, especially of locals, and not slow down their roads and not take up, you know, lock down too many areas of their, where they live. Um, so, but, you know, having been here, I, I understand what people are like here and what it is they, you know, this is not a theme park. It's, you know, it's not a place to come see Jaws locations for everybody. It's their home. And so we need to tread carefully and, uh, you know, and, and, and be really respectful of people in a, because we are going to be location shooting and not really on a studio. Maybe some things on a studio. Certain sets can be built on a studio and, and you shoot and you control and you light for that. But other things are just going to be like we want to be on the beaches of Martha's Vineyard and Menemsha and in Egertown and so forth. Because a lot of these places still look very similar to the way they did in 1974 it's incredible. Martha's Vineyard doesn't age a great deal, mm -hmm. even in almost five decades. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I live in Sandwich, and so it's a pretty old-looking town. Uh, so I understand the, the area. Um, uh, AJ says uh, he loves your passion and uh, take on the project, and he can't wait to see it. All right. I appreciate that. Thanks, AJ. So are, are a lot of the original um, locations still there in Martha's Vineyard? Yes, there's plenty of original locations. Some things are, uh, sorry, where did I put my water? Uh, some things are very much looking exactly the same. There's architecture in Edgartown where the police station, Brody's police station, Vaughn Realty, um, the, you know, let Polly do the printing square where you see the bank behind Brody and Hendricks. Um, those all look pretty much identical the way they did before. Um, we, uh, our group, I should say one other project that we did that, uh, you know, I, I can't, sometimes I just forget about when I'm talking about making the monster and return of the Orca is we did the ultimate jaws location guide. And so there is a Google earth project that we created where you can go online and enjoy a 3d interactive map completely free. 
and uh, see all the locations of Jaws and Jaws 2 and Jaws 4. Uh, 3 was shot in Florida, so we... The, um, you just Google Jaws Location Guide or Ultimate Jaws Location Guide, and you'll see it come right up, and uh, you can enjoy it and, and use it here if you ever come for the day and want to see all the sites. Yeah, I would definitely like to do that. That'd be very cool. Now, uh, let's see. I'm going to look at my phone here. I'm not being rude, but uh, people had, had posted questions earlier, and it's easier if I look on here. Sure. So actually, when you do cast, uh, I know it, it's going to be mostly about like behind the scenes productions, but are you going to cast like uh, like the main actors and, and, and the, someone to play Steven Spielberg? Actors and anybody that you're going to recognize from Jaws. And there's some pretty interesting ideas. Um, I can't reveal them all right now because we're sort of more in the, the throes of experimenting with it. Um, but yeah, we will. Um, there'll be a, a great deal of actual characters who are going to look pretty similar to the people. Uh, you know, for example, we're going to have a Joe Alves character, mm-hmm. and Joe will be, you know, a, uh, a guy who looks like Joe Alves. You know, I mean, um, a man of moderate stature. Uh, Joe's not a very tight, uh, but has very distinguished features and is a, quite a personality. So um, we're really looking forward to being able to cast a person who really represents Joe in the best way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre wants to know uh, if the water is cold uh, uh, when you're filming. But I don't know if you guys are actually be in the water. Filming. We'll be in the water. Just uh, okay. we'll probably try to schedule water shooting. Um, you know, between uh, August and October, <laughs> uh, so that we because the water stays warm here uh, through the fall in October and sometimes even to early November. So um, and the tourist season will have died down then. So probably a lot of good shooting for us after everybody has left the island and the water is still warm. Uh, Robert uh, agrees with you. Not only has uh, Jaws scared him, but uh, it started his fascina- fascination with uh, mo- movie making. That's great. Yeah, a lot of people, I think, that, that, that started their careers. I know the people like um, uh, Brian Singer and others kind of point to Jaws as why they're filmmakers in the first place. Yeah, and a lot of people have said about uh, not being able to swim after seeing Jaws. Yes. And now I, I'm not able to swim as much because I'm on the island. Now I'm afraid of sharks coming here. So right. well, yeah. <laughs> it even comes back when you're an adult. Right. Well, if there's actual warning for the sharks, it's probably a wise thing. It's not in irrational fear any longer. Right. It's not in the bathtub. It's in the actual water. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what were the seals like that you get to see? I've actually never seen a seal in a, you know, um, in person. There's well, there's true, little actually. baby ones. Mm-hmm. There's little baby ones. There's full grown adults that look like a you know a man basically swimming through the water in a wetsuit um, that are huge, and they come real close to shore. You know, they do come in pretty tight to the to the beach, which is another reason it's really important to be careful about it because you don't know if there's any predations being done by any great whites, and that seal is right up there. 15 yards from the sand is that's what we saw is plenty of them in real close. Yeah. Were you part of the Coolidge um, seminar? Yes. John and I hosted that seminar together. What was that experience like? I'm a big fan of the Coolidge corner. Uh, Coolidge after midnight. Yeah. Coolidge corner. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in Brookline. When I, when I left Martha's Vineyard, I moved to Brookline mass and the Coolidge was part of my love affair with movies continuing 
having double features and stuff. And, you know, it's where I saw Blade Runner for the first time and, and a bunch of other movies, Wolfen. Um, yeah, just fun movies. And the Coolidge is, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're still old school. They still have that art deco theater. I love, you know, it feels so yeah, the big red not curtain corporate. that opens up when the, uh, big red curtain, um, 70 millimeter, they'll do 70 millimeter screening. So I find the Coolidge to be a real treat. You know, it's a, it's a diamond in the rough because we can all go to AMC theaters when we could go to AMC theaters. It's not now, obviously, but, um, you know, and it's convenient and you get these nice seats and they'll bring you, you know, a, uh, uh, an overly large Pepsi to your table that, that you're sitting at in the movie theater. But there's nothing like that feeling of a good old, like, you know, classic movie house and not a lot of frills, but, you know, great sound, great picture. And just the, the building has its own character. And that's what the Coolidge is all about. Um, but yeah, we hosted that virtual seminar because a lot of people are doing it virtually these days and had a lot of great questions from people uh, re related to what, you know, both what it was like to be here during the filming of Jaws and why we consider it to be a great film. And what are the, what are some of the things that people who maybe don't get it that, uh, you know, are, are like, Jaws is cool, but I don't see why so many people consider it one of their favorite movies. Um, and I think that's art is subjective. So in some ways it's kind of hard to tell people what they should consider to be great. Um, you know, every, we all have different tastes. I mean, I think that the Jaws means again, sometimes intangible things to people of why it's so special to them. And it's hard to express in words really why. Because it's so many layers of things, I think, that make Jaws work. Adventure thriller, being scared, uh, characters you fall in love with. I mean, I think it's just, it, there's a lot to it. It's not just like, oh, the action is great. You know, there's some films you can just say, great action, great fight choreography, you know, or um, incredible story, you know. And I think that Jaws was the, you know, it was the beginning of learning Steven Spielberg's world, which was fascinating and much more not as plot driven, but more as like fascination driven. And I think that's, what's really cool about it is that Jaws is fascinating for a couple of reasons. Um, and, and you started to get into that and, uh, and then you had close encounters and star Wars and all these Raiders. So there was this love affair with just like really going all out, you know, fantasy filmmaking and people enjoyed the hell out of it. So Jaws is in that, that vein. It's just much more human. I think of the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the, I don't know if I think it was last year I went to uh, Coolidge to see 2001 Space Odyssey. I think it was the 50th anniversary. And there was an older gentleman sitting next to me. And uh, he had told me that he went to see the, uh, the, the premiere of 2001 50 years ago at the Coolidge. And I just thought that was like so wild that, you know, and here he was at the, at the anniversary at the same theater. Absolutely. No, it's, I think it's so great when you can see people still reconnecting to the films that they love in a public forum. Again, we can all appreciate movies on VHS or on beta or, <laughs> or Blu-ray uh, or 4k, but there's something about being able to enjoy it with other people in a movie house. That is a different experience than just watching the movie wherever you can get it. You know, I can watch Jaws on my iPad here, but I, I would far prefer it to be with the company of, you know, a couple hundred other people and many of them who haven't seen it yet so that you can get that classic scream when the Ben, the Ben Gardner head pops out of the bottom of that boat and nobody saw it coming. And just cause everybody flips out at that moment in Jaws. Has a, what's your, what's your like main thing about Jaws? That, that, that I mean, what does it mean to you? I think honestly to me, 
Chief Brody's journey as a character, um, he's an outsider to Martha's Vineyard, or I should say, he's an outsider to Amity, the fictional story, the location in, in the story draws, and he comes with the best of intentions, yet he's being pressured to ignore um, this shark problem because of the local mayor and his crony businessman, and it's not until the, the death of Alex Kintner and his mother comes and slaps him, shames him for having basically not dug in his heels when he should have. He knew that there was a shark out there. He knew it was dangerous, but he let people go swimming anyway. As It's amazing how timely and relevant this story is, huh? It is. It's his character most copy too. Like every, after that, like everything copied the idea of we have to keep things going. Uh, not just like uh, with animal movies, but any like natural disaster. And like Trista just said, it's very timely in the in the last uh, several months. Well, yeah, I see a lot of these. A lot of these tropes are, are used over and over sometimes. How about you, Trista? What, what is uh, what's the main appeal for Jaws for you? Or um, I mean, for me, something I really. Uh, so most of my favorite films are films that I just enjoyed um, for entertainment's sake as a kid and then um, as an adult realizing um, how, how important the themes are. So I think that really holds true for Jaws. You know, uh, greed is, uh, for lack of a better word, bad, right? So <laughs> I think Jaws really exemplifies that. I think uh, that's an important theme in the world we're living in today. Yeah. But as a kid, it's just crazy to see the big shark. I mean, it looks so real. It's yeah. so scary. That's a good point, though, I think, because it does uh, affect all you, – You, no matter what age you are, you can watch a movie and enjoy it. You know, Even if you don't get some of the, the subtext of the movie, you can just watch it as, as a shark movie or as a – as a, you know, this movie about three people bond, three guys bonding, you know, there's lots of things you can get out of the movie. And it's not like it. Sorry, can you guys graphic, still see and hear me? Not, I wasn't uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. We, we can, can now. Yeah. We can see you, David. Okay, good. All right. So, uh, Any other you... questions that I can help address? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, people uh, brought up about, uh, what Tristan just brought up about, uh, um, about it being uh, timely. Uh, Brian uh, says Tris was right on about it being timely, and Adri agrees with the uh, COVID and everything. So, uh, where could I already said this, but where can people follow uh, the making of the monster? Uh, uh, so, we have a uh, our social media presence primarily on making the monster is on Instagram. So, if you go to instagram.com slash making the monster, all one word. You can find out there about the what we've been up to and and uh, the, some really fun facts about the the project and the film. Obviously, the film Jaws, and uh, we also have a Facebook group of that has similar content pushed to it. So if you look for making the monster on Facebook or Instagram, you'll find it there. Very cool. Well, uh, we appreciate you being on, and I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing both. I want to see the the, the rebuilding the orca and uh, making the monster. Yes, me too. Very exciting. Yeah, we're um, Neil. I think I heard you guys. I think um, yeah, your uh, your support is uh, is is wonderful to have, and we we look forward to being able to share this project with people when the time comes. 
Um, and uh, we think we've, we've gotten a sense from enough people who are excited about what we're doing to say, yeah, this is something they'd like to watch. And we would love to watch it ourselves. That's why we're in the, in the, the, the throes of making it and the, the challenges in doing that. Because we think it's worth it. And we think it'll be a story that, you know, Joe, for example, what really wants to see happen, you know, tell the crew story, what they went through on the vineyard. Um, they did a lot of things, you know, I mean, Steven Spielberg directed that, that film and did a great job, but it took the work of 150 and more other crew, uh, Mm -hmm. to get that film in a place where they were able to shoot what they shot. And, uh, that was not an easy task. There was no, there was no computer graphics that made Jaws come together. It was completely a, a, you know, a blood, sweat and tears on the ocean for, you know, seven months of filmmaking. And uh, yeah, it uh, they, they they birthed the real gem, but it was a hard birth, a lot of back labor. Yeah, and those are people that don't always get credit, so it's it's good to see uh, you know their story told. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we're hoping for. You know, let their let their stories be shared and, and honor them for also being part of bringing this film uh, into the fold, which you know people don't ever seem to get tired of. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. I think Joe. We're still here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm still Nasty Neil. I'm still Treacherous Trista. Right. And we're joined here by, he's got all kinds of titles. The animator, he's, he created Jaws, a set designer, art director, production designer. He's an artist and a director. And probably a lot of things I'm missing. Joe Alves is on with us. It's very good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. So... What can we talk about? Talk about anything Probably you want. Pause, huh? Yeah. Well, no, we could talk about a lot. There's got a lot of things here going on. But since we did did just have David on, uh, what's that been like to be part of this making of the Monster Project? Well, it's interesting. All this has come out about the, the same time. Uh, David approached me about this. We had uh, a number of uh, old Jaws people interviewed at my house. Tom Joyner, who's a assistant director. And it's like, I forgot about Jaws for a long time, even though I do have a website and I sell copies of my storyboards. But in February of this year, I was flown up to Seattle to watch a stage play, three, three days of rehearsal on a stage play called Bruce, is the name of the shark. And they had... Um, in, in Seattle, great repertory theater group. They, they flew two people from New York, the person that plays uh, Stephen and the person that plays me. 
And uh, so that was interesting. Uh, it, it, was, it was really not about the making of the, it was more the, the beginning of the movie, how it started and Stephen's reaction and all that. So that was interesting. And then, of course, the, uh, with the, the virus now, uh, I don't know what's happening to that. But at the same time, uh, this year, uh, I have a book uh, called... Oh, nice. Uh, have you seen this? Yep. Designing Jaws. Oh, yeah, this is on Amazon. And so I worked with uh, the writer that going through every detail of the making of the shark and stuff. And Greg Nicotero is a big fan. He wrote the, uh, the uh, intro. So... I mean, the, the forward, I should say. Anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, Jaws has now come back very strongly. And it seems like right now with the epidemic, uh, people have uh, a lot of time. And, and I've had people come in with hundreds of things to sign, you know, where we used to do shows. We're not doing shows now. So it's, it's, and obviously the 45th anniversary, uh, Universal uh, had called me uh, to do a number of uh, podcasts to promote it. And uh, I did an hour and a half one with uh, 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 Kevin Smith, and he was a big Jaws fan. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's, that's what's happening now. Uh, you want to hear about what used to happen? Yeah, of course. So uh, we'll go. We'll start with some jaws, and we'll we'll work on some of your other projects. We'll talk about some of your other projects too. But uh, just uh, designing the shark, like because um, it's a shark, so it's something that we know. Like, uh, so what what went into that? Because you don't want to make it too much like a monster. You want to make it look like a shark. Oh no! Actually, uh, you see in the book uh, what happened. First of all. Is I got a, I was on the picture very early before Stephen was on. Uh, David Brown and Richard Zanuck were the producers of Sugarland Express, Stephen's first movie, and I got to know them. Anyway, without going into a long story, uh, David Brown's uh, wife, Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, read this, uh, this book, not a book, it was galley sheets of this thing called Jaws, of the new writer, Peter Benchley. And uh, the studio wasn't really interested in doing a shark movie. And uh, so David said, if I send you the galleys, could you do preliminary drawings based on the book? So basically, I did, I'm just going to show you these kind of things. Oh, wow. And so I did, all based on the book, which was a little different, and uh, so uh, I would talk to Stephen uh, about doing the, this movie, and he, he, he wasn't brought into it yet. They had some other director in mind, but the guy kept calling it a whale and not a shark, and they got rid of him. And Stephen was, wanted to do a pirate movie. But anyway, we would talk about if we did this, we didn't want to do... Uh, there's a movie called Old Man in the Sea, and they had a big marlin, and it was in a studio tank with a backdrop. And it, no, if we're going to do this, we're going to do a full-size shark, a uh, big shark in the real ocean. And that was our determination. 
Long story short, after I completed all these drawings, we had a meeting in Marshall Green's office, who was a head of production. And he was, uh, he was sort of favored this, this, this story because he lived on a boat. So he, he loved the ocean. So uh, at the studio time, the studio system, there was uh, department heads, you know, and, and that's how you got a job. You started off as a junior or something and, and you, they had a head of department. He would give you work to do. So anyway, we had a meeting in Marshall's office with all this, all the various departments, camera, effects, art department, brother. And Stephen was brought on at this time. This was uh, October 3rd. Uh, and I know that because there was a note that left, and it's in the book that I keep, I, I saved everything. Uh-huh. Meeting in Marshall's office, Bird Jaws, 10 o'clock, October 3rd. Anyway, after I did my spiel, Marshall turned to the effects department and said, uh, can you make the shark? And their reaction was, no, uh, it's never been done. Nobody's ever made a big monster thing like that in the real ocean. And then he said, and besides, we've got a bigger movie to do, the Hindenburg. And uh, Marshall got really upset. And he said, Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg. And everybody laughed because the Hindenburg was going to be the big movie, not this little shark movie. Because I really was thinking about, you know, a few million dollars is all for the shark. So basically, uh, I was collecting all my drawings. Everybody left, and Marshall called me back, and he said, Joe, can you get the shark made? And being ambitious, what have you, I said, yeah, I'll certainly try. And okay, so now your question was about the shark. So here's how it started. I went to various... I went to Disney. They said they could make it, but they, oh, and Marshall said, take it off the lot. Don't have anything to do with the lot. And that was really unusual because everything was done in-house, mm-hmm. you, you know, and uh, in their effects department. But since they already said they couldn't do it, so take it away. So I went to a number of people, Joe Lombardi, who did the Godfather's effects guy and Disney. And anyway, I came across an illustrator, Jim Casey, who said, you have you talked to Bob Maddie? He did the giant squid in 20,000 leagues under the sea. And Bob was a very um, ambitious, retired guy. I mean, he, yeah, he could do anything. So we met, and there's a, uh, I won't find it here, but uh, and we talked about the shark of what it would do. And he said, give me a couple of days. And he came back with a wire sculptor that you pull this and, and the mouth opens, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's put together a team. So we needed a specialist. Roy Abergas was a specialist in the new plastics and lacimers and stuff. And he was making breakaway bottles in the, in the uh, effects department. So we got him and we got Richie Helmer who did the electricity, the electrical stuff. We put together about six guys, not hundreds, six. And Bob, I call him the Magnificent Seven. All right. Now, what I needed to do was uh, make a shark. And uh, I started off, I made a, uh, all this is in the book, a, a four-foot model. And uh, I, I checked with a lot of uh, uh, various, let's say, uh, 
uh, oceanographical studies places in the Steinhardt uh, oceanographical uh, had a guy named uh, Leonard Campagno, and he was an expert on on sharks. Still is, uh, and so we met, and he talked to me about um, the the white shark, the Cardum carcaris, and uh, he flew down to LA and he worked on the model with me. So I made the model out of clay and then I got Leonard really detailing it. So I mean, it was right on. It wasn't just fabricated something from an art artist standpoint. What I was trying to do was literally make an accurate shark. So uh, we made that and that was four feet. Now he told me that a 12 foot shark, white shark, has the best proportions. As they get bigger, they get fatter, girthy, and we didn't want a fat-looking shark. Mm -hmm. So we took the 12-foot shark and we doubled it, and that's how we got to the 24, 25-foot. And uh, so from uh, from my 4-foot shark, we made it four, six times bigger, and uh, we got a crew together, uh, and uh, started sculpting it and then making molds. And uh, now let me just explain one thing. I have to always do this. That was October, November. Uh, I put the crew together, probably December of 73. They found a place to start making it. Okay. The book came out in February of 74 and the, and everybody told me this. Everybody said if they could make it, it would take a good year, year and a half to make because they've never made it before and they'd have to, you know, test it and see, you know, because it'd be in the water. So get that. So I needed a year and a half to make it. Book came out in February, two months later. And the studio said, we're going to start shooting this movie in two months. So... Uh, I have to defend the shark not working because we never tested it. We, we would, I would put it out there, and if it worked, we would shoot it. If it didn't, it was a test. So, so that's basically how the thing started. Yeah. Is that uh, easier or harder to design something uh, based on something that exists, like a shark, as opposed to making something that no one's technically seen before, like an alien or something? Process is the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a designer, you you get a you get a script and you break it down. And in in this book, there's the writer wanted to put this in, but he has my total script breakdown, page by page, on a yellow sheet. And it comes up to, I need an old fishing boat, you know. So you research that, and uh, I want to give it more character. Same thing with Quid's chat. So it's all a set. So uh, the idea of we're making a model uh, of a shark is going to look really like the Cucaratum Cucaratus. Or if you're going to make a monster, you still start off the set. You start with sketches, and then you make a, a model, clay model or, or whatever, uh, and you proceed that way. So it's, it, it's a, a, how should I say it? it, it there's a process. Now, with Jaws, I was the production designer. 
Art director production design is the same thing. It just gives you a, like you're the head of the department. But uh, I mean, I was a night gallery. I did 26 sets a week and uh, it gave me credit as an art director because they didn't start giving production design credits uh, freely until the mid seventies. You know, just a few people got it on big, big movies. Um, anyway, um, so uh, basically, uh, you just uh, you, you take. Uh, I had I would myself. I used some set designers uh, in the art department that were regular, and uh, proceeded uh, to make the make the shark uh, in uh, Sunland, California. Uh, and then, since I was the only person, uh, Stephen was coming aboard, and Stephen was, well, eventually wrote a script. Uh, you know, if you read the script or see the movie and then read, a, read the book, you'll see that the, the film is much linear than the book. There was no relationship between Brody's wife and the, you know, the ecthologist or... They had the mafia involved in that, and so it would. And then when Carl Gotti came and started writing, it just became much more linear. We have a problem. Uh, the mayor was resisting the problem. The sheriff, you know, said we have a problem, and then um, we go out and uh, you know work with this shark. Anyway, no, it's been very interesting. And uh, you know, you said earlier about you know. Uh, everyone still asks you about Jaws. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that Jaws has uh, stood the test of time and it's always, you know, being uh, being discovered by new audiences? That's quite interesting. Uh, obviously, you, you met Brian Singer and uh, Kevin Smith and Greg Nicotero, uh, my, my writer, Dennis uh, Prince. They're all about uh, mid-50s now. So they were really, um, when Jaws came out, they were very young. Jaws 3 was like well, the first one they could go and pay and see. So that so the first three Jaws were very instrumental in their career. And uh, a lot of them talk about it. Now, I did Jaws 1, 2, and 3, and then I just wanted to forget about sharks for a long time. And it, it seemed to have gone away until... The turn of this century, for some reason, uh, we started doing shows, and I had storyboards I would sell, and I would have kids come up to these shows, and and I said, "Well, your parents weren't even born, you know, but, but why it, it suddenly became so popular, uh, I I don't know, but this century, uh, a lot of a lot of interest in my storyboards and hearing about it. The, the book is doing quite well. Um, so my interest became, you know, because people are, want me to, to sign things. Uh, I'll just, I will tell you this. Uh, two years ago, they had, uh, Catalina Island had a, um, a museum and they wanted to do a six months show of Jaws, sort of like, they're Amity, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in uh, Catalina. So we had a show, um, and I had original storyboards, which I very seldom put the originals out because they become sort of scarce. 
And Greg Nicotero made the three characters full size from his, he's got an incredible facility. And they're full size with hair on their arms. And we had the original cage and original barrels. And so we wrote a book, the first one, or Dennis did, on Joel's Designing Jaws. It was a, a thinner book, wasn't home. And uh, what was interesting is we had a screening outside, big, big uh, screen uh, near the museum. Everybody, yeah, it was a outdoor theater kind of thing. And I wasn't planning on watching the movie, but Julia, who was ahead of introduced me to the crowd and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I was ready to leave. And then she said, oh, and Joe's going to talk about the movie afterwards. So my wife said, sit here and watch the movie. Now, here's what I realized about the movie, because I was on it and involved in it in so many ways. And I'll tell you a couple of things about the head coming out of the, 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 the bow. Um, so I, I sat and I watched the movie, but it had been some time, so I wasn't really concerned about the technical aspects. You know, I just watched it as a movie. And what makes that movie really good is the three guys, the, the relationship between those three guys. The sheriff who didn't want to be on the boat, the, the ichthyologist, young smartass, and the old, you know, fisherman on his, in his terrain on his boat. And that was what worked. And then when the shark came, it was like, oh, my God, you know. And something else I want to clarify, because I hear these experts on podcasts saying the shark didn't work, so they used the barrels. Absolutely not true. If you see on my storyboards, the barrels are in the book. And I painted them yellow because I figured they would stand out because they're normally black. But that's the way they would shoot them with the harpoon. And then they, so what Stephen wanted to do, and it's in the storyboards, wanted to create a Hitchcock kind of thing. There's a barrel. He can't go down with two barrels. He goes down with two barrels. He gets three barrels. So we used the shark, or I should say Stephen used it, and we storyboarded. I've got 200 storyboards here. And every, every shark shot that we storyboarded, we got. So we, we got as much as the shark as we wanted uh, because I think you could overdo it. Today, they'll do a big shark thing and there'll be a thousand sharks and with CGI. That's the thing about CGI is you could overuse it. I mean, you could make a really streamlined looking shark, but you can't, oh yeah, we'll th throw that in there because it's easy, you know. Um, anyway, um, that's I agree about C. I also think with CG, a lot of times they'll use, like you said, use too much. They'll also use too many. Like if it's an army of people or an army of monsters, it'll be like a million. Where it's just exactly. after a while, you don't even care about it then because I always so use this. Uh, I re refer to this one. John Wayne has got uh, twenty-five cavalry, and he comes, and then there's the a hill and a hundred Indians show up on the hill. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, a hundred Indians, but we've got guns. They have arrows. But today they would do 300,000 Indians, you know, right. I mean, over, I mean, they did that on some of the remakes of uh, Starman. I mean, uh, 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 Star Wars, you know, the, 
fifth one or six of these creatures. And you say, come on, it's over the top, you know. So to me, Jaws had more of a mystery of the relationship between the guys. And then uh, the shark comes. Mm -hmm. So the problem was it didn't work all the time because we really didn't have a year to do it, to test it. And, and so we had three sharks, one that went right to left, one left to right. Uh, and so the other backside of it was open to get to the mechanics. And then we had the one on the big platform that you could sink and it had a crane and a track and stuff. So I'd go to Bob, I'd say, what's working today? And uh, he said, well, I think maybe left to right shark. And I'd go to Stephen, left to right shark might be working. We'd go up to the storyboards and say, let's see, that's 182, 183, 184. And we'd tell everybody, this is what's happening. So, so everybody had an idea, the camera crew, the, uh, the prop people, everything, this is what we're shooting tomorrow. We needed a whole day to prepare. So I said, if it works, we shoot it. If it does it, it's a test. And, and basically, that's the way it went. You know? Mm -hmm. I have... Yeah, go ahead. No, you, I was just oh. going to ask... Uh, I was just saying about the theme song. Like, because the theme song is so... The theme of Jaws is, like, so iconic. Like, when did you first hear that? And, and uh, well, Let me you tell you. Uh, what John did was incredible, you know, uh, with the two notes and... Uh, in the play that I was talking about, mm -hmm. they have character, and Stephen has made this movie, and he wants John Williams to write the music because he did Sugarland Express. And there was a sort of funny, but this is, you know, uh, in a play. And Stephen is telling John, John says, This is it, but uh, John, they're paying you too much money to write two notes, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Oh, I, there's an interesting thing. Uh, you mentioned in the last show, you live in Cape Cod. Yeah. You've never been to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> no, I've never been to Martha's yeah. Or Nantucket, okay. actually. But yeah. Where? Nantucket. Yeah, I've never <laughs> been to either one, actually. But yeah. okay. so, so after I got the, the shark working, um, we, had, we didn't have a big department. I didn't have a location scout, you know. Uh, so I... Uh, it was just, I flew to, to New York and met Peter. And also, besides uh, wanting to find a wonderful village, I needed to find a, uh, a bay with 25 feet depth and very small tide so that uh, Bob's uh, platform thing could be sunk and uh, raised up. And so I couldn't have a, a big tide. And in the West Coast, they have 12-foot tides. So I was looking for a small tide and the bay. So that also, I, I, you know, looking for the village. So I had, uh, I had charts of the whole area, the marine uh, area and the depths of the water and all that. So I met Peter and I said, uh, so uh, where did you write this for? You know, and uh, he said, oh, let's see, Sag Harbor, Covington, you know, Montauk, very, no, no place specific. So I'm looking along here, and he says, oh, yeah, here's Nantucket. He said, go, go and visit my parents. You know, they're really nice people. 
And I said, what about this uh, island in Martha's Vineyard? Oh, there's nothing there. I've never been there, but there's nothing there. <laughs> so this is what he lived on Nantucket. So then when they go to Woods Hole, why would you go to another island? So basically, I scouted all that area. I took the boat to Nantucket. The water was too rough, and they turned back. And then I saw, oh, here's a, a boat to Martha's Vineyard. Oh, nobody, nothing's there, but I better look anyway. So, um, and uh, so it was, you know, Woods Hole had a little too much character. Uh, uh, Edgar Town. Woods Hole, yeah. And, uh, and, and Manepsha. Uh, and then I found this bay right in, right on the way from between Woods Hole. I mean, between uh, uh, it was Edgar Town and anyway, it was 25 feet deep and it had a two foot tide. So that's where we're going to shoot that. And uh, Menemsha was great for, you know, the quids and all these little fishing. That became certain problems too. Uh, so I came back and I got, you know, Stephen, I took pictures of 35 millimeter and we'd have to develop them and then we do a pan shot and put it on. You know, you do this for when you scout. Same thing when I did close encounters. You, you don't just show one mountain. You so, you know, give the director a choice. And uh, so I gave him, you know, to put Martha's Vineyard seemed to be it. And uh, so anyway, I just thought that was sort of amusing. That <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Oh. Uh, is is uh, what's that process like scouting you know, these locations? You know, uh, is that a fun process? It also seems like it'd be very time consuming. Yeah. Interesting uh, because I had a speech I did uh, in February. The Art Directors Guild gave me a, a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I, I did a speech. Greg Nicotero introduced me, and Stephen did a video. And um, so I talked to them about. Scouting for Devil's Tower, scouting for the unusual mountain. Another movie, I won't go into that too long. They didn't want to spend more than two or three million dollars. Very low budget sci-fi movie until Jaws came out. And then that gave Stephen more ability. And, and then I ended up building the biggest set in the world at that time. Anyway, so I, what I did is, is I looked for an unusual mountain. And there was Ship Rock, uh, Chimney Rock. Uh, uh, I looked at uh, this monument uh, where the, the monuments are, um, and I, I probably you know seven or eight different unusual. And then uh, I think Carl Gottlieb was looking at the map. We were in Verna Fields' office. Verna was the editor of Jaws on the Academy Award, and then she became a, a, a vice president. She had an office, and we'd go hang out with her, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, looking at this map, and Carl said, oh, you look at this Devil's Tower. So anyway, I'm telling these people, I said, you know, when I was scouting that, I drove 3,000 miles looking for a strange-looking mountain. I said, but today you just Google it, right? <laughs> right, right. But you miss all the scenery along the way, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's it's – Filmmaking is so different today because you just get on and you Google something. Or before you got into a car on Sugarland Express, we drove so many miles on Texas to find different roads and different things. But that's what you did. Mm -hmm. uh, so now I don't know if it's better. It, it's less time consuming, but is is 
for an example, uh, Arches Park. I, I looked at Arches, and it was it was great, but it didn't work out for uh, close encounters. But it did for Geronimo. When I was doing Geronimo, I said, "Wait, I need a place with some really interesting." Oh yeah. So, in other words, by physically going there, mm -hmm. it gives you an experience mm -hmm. of, oh, maybe I could use this some other time, you know. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I'm talking a lot. No, that they oh, found it very fascinating. Love it. Yeah. Uh, did you have a question, Trista? Um, earlier, I think you mentioned that you sell uh, storyboards on your website. I was wondering if you could tell the audience uh, the website. Hang on, I can't. I have. Uh, what do I do with that? Just a second. Uh, yeah, take your time. No, here it is. Ah, okay. You got that? These of Joe Alves. Let's see here. Oh, yeah. www.joealvesmovieart.com. Perfect. And you, see, that's the kind of thing that I sell. It, and, you know, in the book, oh, God. Uh, you can see there's just you know, page after page. And, you know, like there's the barrels. We had planned this all the time. And, you know, it's, it's dramatic. You have these yellow barrels and there's the boat. And you know what's down there. You don't have to show them, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, oh, there's Stephen. Uh, anyway, um, so that's the website. Yeah. So Thank I, you. I know yeah, I want to tell you guys something. Um, yeah. So, well, first of all, uh, going back to John Williams, and I'll go into something else. When the shark would work, it would make really weird noises with the valves and, you know. <laughs> so once Stephen would say, you know, cut, everybody would laugh. That silly shark. It may, you know, it, it was just a prop to us. Do you know what I mean? When it's sitting there like this and then, okay, get the shark broken, Bob. And then, okay, here comes a dumb shark. And it does, you know, everybody laughed. So when we had the first uh, the screening in uh, the L.A. area, I thought, oh, my God, they're going to laugh at this shark, you know. And I sat down, and then John's music comes. And then the shark, and they screamed. And I thought, oh, I guess maybe this is going to work. Now, they had a first screening in Texas, and Stephen came to me and he said, um, we have four screens. I think we can get five. But there's a couple things we need. I need to have the bow of the ship breaking when the shark, and they're singing, show me the way to go home, boom, boom, and the shark. So I build a lot of things at my house. I build half my house. I like to work in the wood. And so I, I told Stephen, no problem. I'll build a little hull. So he, Stephen came over. We've got a camera somewhere and it, with a hose. And we shot that boom, 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 breaking. Now he said, there's another one I want. And that's when Dreyfus goes down and he drops the tooth. And we see the hole in the hull. He says, if I could get the head coming out of that hole, you know, floating out. 
I think I can get another screen. So I built another section of the bow with a hole in it, and we took it to Verna Field's swimming pool. And uh, Verna was an incredible help in the movie. I mean, she won the Academy Award for editing. And, but so Stephen stole or had somebody steal the head out of the, uh, the <clears throat> makeup department or, and uh, got an underwater camera somehow. And so we did that in Verna's pool, got the cloudy water. And the head comes out of that hole. Well, that one freaked everybody out. I mean, it, it just... Uh, so as big as this movie has become, mm -hmm. it was also shot a little bit in my driveway. It was shot in Verna's pool. It, even though there were hundreds of people, there were probably a half a dozen, you know, really serious people. Obviously, Stephen... Uh, Bill Gilmore, who was the production manager, who really sort of put this stuff together. You know, Verna, who was incredible editor. Verna and I did some shot some second unit uh, on the first Jaws. Uh, and um, so it was a small team that really, really tried to... The crew was very disciplined, but they got really tired. I mean, if you sit on a boat and wait and wait for the... Now, he, here's a big problem. When I scouted uh, Edgartown, it was uh, in January, and everything that I scouted all over the East Coast was snow on the beaches. Mm -hmm. So when I found this bay, it was a beautiful bay, and the beach was just covered with snow, and it was just dead out there. Come July, you know, June, July, August, it's just loaded with boats from, you know, Hyannis. They just, uh, and um, in fact, Walter Cronkite had a boat there. Uh, so Stephen's idea was that these guys are so isolated that he didn't want to see any boats out there. In fact, that's where he, they break the radio. So they're totally isolated. So it's the three of them and the big shark. Well, Stephen was, I mean, for a young director, I got to tell you, he was so strong and said, no, I'm not going to shoot if I see any boats out there. I want them totally isolated. So we would say, you know, runners out there, could you move the boat? Could you sail this way? And some people would cooperate. Other people would say, no, absolutely not. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Free country, you know, right? Yeah, but could you just help? So, uh, studio and executive really getting upset. Steven, why doesn't he shoot? Because there's boats out there. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference, today we could just remake, re remove them, uh, you know, uh, just Google them out. So that took a long time, and the crew was really, really getting tired. And I experienced this on Jaws 2 when I directed about 85 uh, days of uh, second unit and just sitting on the boat and waiting for the, the shark to work or something to work. Or... Anyway, that, that, that's what created such a long shoot. It wasn't necessarily just the shark. It was the environment. Uh, uh, 
my fault in that I, I was so in love with Martha's Vineyard and everything, not realizing uh, what would happen, you, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it was very, very difficult. So, you know, you mentioned Close Encounters. So could, could you tell right away, like, how, how, uh, how much different, uh, like, the budget was and just how things have co- uh, went from doing Jaws with Spielberg and Sugarland Express and now on Close Encounters? Let me tell you about Close Encounters. Um, first of all, Stephen was going to do a, a movie called Bing Along and His Traveling All-Stars. We went skiing in Mammoth, and we got stuck in the snow, and, and he was reading me. Uh, he was telling me about uh, Bing Along, and it was black baseball in the 30s. I, I took a bunch of Life magazines of that period. And he started telling me about this thing called uh, Watch the Sky. Mm-hmm. And he had read this book by... Uh, uh, Dr. Heine uh, called uh, UFOs Scientific Inquiry and in the book it, it talked about all the UFO sightings and close encounters to the first kind, second kind and third kind and I said to Steve and I said uh, this sounds like a more interesting movie than you know being alone and he said well I don't have a deal and I haven't finished writing it and what have you so I have, didn't hear from Stephen for a couple of weeks, and I got a call from John Badham, who was a director I worked with in Night Gallery quite a bit. And he was doing a movie called Bing Along. And I said, oh, well, I guess Stephen's not doing it. In, in the meantime, I, I, Stephen was writing. I did uh, Embryo, a thing with Rock Hudson, a small movie. Ralph Nelson was the director. And then Stephen got uh, uh, the first write, you know, script, first edition of uh, Close Encounters. He changed it from Watch the Sky. My, my first script I got from him is Watch the Sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Veach, who was uh, vice president, uh, head, actually he was head of uh, production at Columbia. And he said, Joe, this is a low budget. I always love that. This is a low budget sci-fi movie. Everything's going to be done on the back lot or at the soundstage. But you need to find one interesting location. So I went off and looked at the location. Now, uh, then John said, uh, Joe, you're going to build this set. Because at first it was not a, a big arena in the script. They were just out in the desert, and it was just a group of military people wanting to experience this thing. You know, John, um, when they they heard that the the shark, the the shark, this, this, uh, uh, you know, a flying saucer was going to come down, this great, uh, so uh, alien uh, thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if we had an arena so we have all these technical instruments to measure it? So I started making a model, did a lot of models in those days, of an arena. And John V said, you could have the biggest stage, 15, 16 connected. Then he shot Camelot there, blah, blah, blah. And my reaction was, I, th- I think it's too small. And he <laughs> said, what? Jaws started to come out. Right, uh-huh. and it went from this nothing little movie to this gigantic summer blockbuster, and they never 
released more than, you know, a few dozen theaters at the time. But when uh, uh, Lou Wasserman and you know, various heads of Universal saw the reaction to the movie, they said, we've got to change the... So they opened it to 450 theaters. First time, big summer blockbuster. So after a couple of weeks, Jaws became this big thing. So now Stephen, having more power, power is interesting in Hollywood, enlarged the script concept. And I, so I, Columbia had, was having some problems, technical, uh, with their, uh, I would say, uh, Beagle was having some legal problems and stuff. They, they needed a movie. And so I had all the actors, uh, Julia, Michael Phillips, and various uh, executives, they came and they looked at my model. And they said, oh, that's interesting, yeah. And they said, do you, is it a problem? Do you have a problem? I said, yeah, I think it's too small. I think it should be four times this. Oh, that'd be good. So I made a model four times bigger. So everything was really small because this important event, uh, you know, the spaceship coming down and we're going to meet all these aliens. So they said, uh, okay, great. Where are you going to do it? And then I didn't have a clue because there was no soundstage in the world that big. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically it was a question uh, to uh, Clark Palo was a look, production manager. He was a very, very nice guy. Clark and I started looking for big places to shoot, various hangars. And there's a lot of these World War II Zeppelin hangars and even World War I. And uh, with some of them, there one in Oregon, but it had uh, a lumberyard thing attached to its noise, one car. Then I found this place in Mobile, Alabama, and it had two big uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, hangers, but we could extend it. It was certain 300 feet square, and I could extend it another 150 feet. So as Stephen's concepts grew, as Jaws became bigger, it gave us more power. I mean, it's that's the way Hollywood is. Yeah. If it didn't, if, all, if Jaws tanked, Close Encounters would be a really small little movie. But the fact that it became so powerful, and I made this set, ended up being so huge. Uh, but that's the way we did things then, you know. I mean, today we do a lot of green screen. I mean, we have a, a set there where Melinda Dillon and Dreyfus run up this hill, and they look over and they see this big arena. That would have been done in green screen. Today, that was a, a set I made seven stories high mountain on rollers that we could roll in front of a 125-foot projection screen and then project with, you know, the big arena down there. So um, it, it grew because of one successful movie became another successful movie now, uh, probably the disappointment was um, we were supposed to release it before Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Doug Trouble got, um, I don't know, it got very, very confusing, very difficult. And it, his involvement, he was a brilliant guy, he did Space Odyssey, you know, the special effects. But it lengthened his 
his time and in, in visual effects. So we didn't release it in uh, January. Uh, we released it in uh, November. Mm-hmm. And so I think Star Wars sort of took away some of the, it was a different kind of movie. Yeah, totally. Uh, I was going to mention, like, uh, I don't know, because I've always loved Close Encounters of Third Kind, but it's not really a movie, a science fiction movie that would be made today because it's not like, you know, aliens attacking or there's not a lot of action. It's more, you know, about the idea of actually coming in contact with another life form and what this would mean, you know, for the world. That's what was so good about it is you have these aliens. They, they, Stephen did add the other weird looking one that came down, but you had these little kids. And uh, I remember it, uh, the spaceship I made was so big. It was uh, 85 feet and it was covered mirror of my lore with 3,000 photo flows and it was so hot. We had these little kids dressed in these uniforms. I had to put air conditioning in that. Um, but uh, at Vilmos, it was interesting. Vilmos did an incredible job. Um, you know, I had a wonderful illustrator, George Jensen, and he illustrated beautiful color. In fact, I did a, another book, but it, we had to self. We had to self publish it because uh, uh, Sony was too active about what we could do, what we couldn't do. And uh, anyway, uh, let's see, where was I? I was talking about... uh, Uh, Close Encounters. Yeah. uh, So uh, the the movie became... I, I just... So it, it, uh, Star Wars, as they took that sort of initial sci-fi thing, you know, it became so important that um, Close Encounters was respected. In other words, uh, I got Academy nomination for it. I won the British Academy Award. Mm-hmm. I lost to Star Wars, uh, but I, I did get the British Academy Award and uh, against because the, there were British designers on Star Wars, so... It was it was sort of fun. Uh, anyway, yeah, the, the the movie grew, and I think uh, when you see it today, it see it works. It holds up. And that little boy, so uh, Stephen did a special edition where they went into the spaceship. I didn't like that too much. Uh, and Let's then ask he, you about that because the the huh? end of the, the original end, it's just the light, and he walks into the light. And, Perfect. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's a perfect and ending. And the little boy goes, you know. Yeah. And then it's up to your imagination what's in there. Exactly. I don't know why they wanted to go inside and see, and see these aliens hanging from various decks. Uh, but I think Stephen then decided was not, the, you know, the best, best one. But, um, yeah, it, it's a very personal story. Uh, Stephen said he couldn't do a movie like that again. This is what I gather because of Dreyfus's character leaving his family. Mm-hmm. You know, and Stephen has a lot of kids and he's right. a very family guy. Just to, to leave and go off. Um, but uh, it, it is a different kind of, uh, you know, sci-fi. Yeah, to me, that's more what science fiction is. And uh, I actually really like Star Wars, don't get me wrong, but I don't really consider that science. It takes place in space and stuff. It's not really science fiction. It's more of, uh, 
an action movie that happens or an adventure movie that happens to take place, you know, in outer space. I know it's kind of a, a snobby yeah, thing to say, but I think I think a Close Encounter is an actual science fiction. Well, it's a different kind of movie. I mean, I enjoyed Star Wars, and mm-hmm. I thought that George did an incredible job. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I don't know you can compare them. They're just sure. totally different. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I agree 100%. So that was the, the third movie you did with Steven, and then um, – the last one too. Did, was there ever talks to work again after that together? What happened was um, he was doing. Uh, what was he doing? He was doing a picture. <clears throat> um, I can't remember right now, uh, but he was preparing it. And uh, Zanuck and Brown, they didn't do sequels much, but Jaws was such a big success. Danica mm-hmm. Brown asked me if I would come on and do be the production designer. They would make me an associate producer, and that was a big deal to be an associate with Danica Brown. And I would direct the second unit because I did direct uh, one of the scenes in Jaws. Stephen was getting so tired, he left me with a. Uh, it's in the book uh, with a little Kittner boy. It's on a raft, and the shark grabs it, and uh, so I directed that. And so I was used to. The directing was sort of a natural thing because you do all the storyboards, you plan all the shots, you know where the camera's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so the director takes the storyboards uh, and, and I worked, you know, with him, roughed it out, and then I finished the joints. And so you pretty well know where the camera's going to go that, for action and stuff like that. So uh, then uh, Beagle Longland is traveling in all stars. No, what was it? It was uh, 1940s. 1940s, 42, 42 I think is so. movie. Yeah. And so I went to Steven and I said, uh, I read 42 and I made a breakdown of it. And I said, uh, Zanuck and Brown have offered me, you know, he says, well, I'll give you the same thing. We had a really good working relationship. And I said, um, okay, good, I'll go with you. But he said, well, I don't have a deal yet. And in Hollywood, if you don't have a deal, you don't have a deal. Uh, and uh, so I had a lot of pressure to do Jaws too, and uh, so we we split up then. And uh, when I came back from Jaws two, he asked me to come in and do some other stuff, but he was already well into it. And uh, so we we kept in communication. Uh, I think uh, then I got involved in two, and then. He called me about what was the uh, the one he did with the kid? Uh, uh, E.T. E.T. Yeah. By the way, it's 1941. Robert Perez here corrected. 1941. Yeah. Uh, E.T. And I was already uh, sort of committing to do Jaws 3D, and uh, so that that's basically we just separated that way, and then he started, and he explained one time to me. He said on the the adventures movies he did with Harrison Ford, you know, uh, they were all English books. So yeah. he couldn't, uh, couldn't hire me for that. So we, we just sort of separated. So hadn't talked to each other. So I was really, really surprised when I got this award. Nobody told me, uh, the head of the, uh, art department, I mean, art uh, directors guild, 
said, who's going to introduce you? And I said, I, I, I don't know. Everybody's dead, you know, that I worked with pretty much. They said, how about Stephen? I said, oh, I haven't talked to Stephen for years. Why would he want to introduce me? So um, they pursued it. And Stephen said, uh, he, he's doing a West Side Story. He said he couldn't really do it. So I didn't know anything was going to happen. Then Greg Nicotero said, oh, I'd love to introduce you. So Greg, you know, went and then I go up to get the award, and there have been showing cuts. And here's Spielberg on a video. And I got to tell you, that blew me away. Yeah. All these years that he would take the time to do a video and say, what a great relationship we had. Yeah, that's amazing. You know. well, just real quick, I thought, uh, what you said about uh, why he wouldn't want to make uh, Close Encounters again, it really explains the E.T. because E.T. is about uh, – both, both of them staying with their family. The, the alien goes back with his family, and the kid stays with his family instead of either the yeah, alien staying with them. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's what I heard. That's what, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know if he specifically told me that. It's probably something I heard him. Yeah. So was Jaws yeah. 3, the plan was, was it the plan always to be 3D? No. No, what happened was I was doing a thing called The Ninja. Uh, Kirshner was the director, and I was into it about six, seven months. I made Scouted Japan. I came back. They hadn't cast it yet, and uh, that was for Fox. Fox changed ownership, and they canceled everything that was not cast already or shooting. So I came back to Hollywood, and I went to see my good friend Verna, and Verna said, oh, Joe, Jaws 3, they were going to make uh, Jaws 3, People Zero. Uh, George, uh, Joe Dante was going to direct it. Mm -hmm. And it was a movie making fun of the people that made their most successful movie. I mean, right. sort of bad taste. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, what I heard was Spielberg said, okay, you want to make this? Then, you know, forget about me, you know being part of Universal, whatever. That's what I heard. Mm -hmm. So uh, they canceled it, and this sort of a, a television producer, uh, Alan Landsberg, did That's Incredible, and shows like that. Verna said, Alan has bought it, and he's going to make the third Jaws, and uh, you know it's going to be a cheap ripoff. And she said, go to him, see if you could save you know, the franchise. So um, I went to see him, and he said, well, I'll let you produce it. I said, no, either I direct it or not. He said, well, I don't know yet. Go scout with Richard Matheson, who wrote it. And we went to various theme parks, water parks, went in Florida. And one of them had uh, an underwater 3D going through kelp and all the sea life and everything. We came out, and he looked at me, and he said, what, Jaws in 3D? I said, no, Jaws 3D. If you put the D after the Jaws, three, you know, it, it, takes, it takes away the... Because they weren't doing many sequels at that time. You know, uh, Rocky were doing it, but nobody wanted to do a third, you know, Jaws. So I said, yeah, 3D. So it was around Thanksgiving. I remember I, I made an illustration. I still have it save everything. And I had Jaws coming out with 
3D, 3D, 3D. So I showed it to Landsberg. He flipped out. He said, let's take this to Universal. Sid Scheinberg was the president, and Lou Austin was the head of everything there. And so they said, uh, can I have this? I said, of course you can have it. Here they have the studio. <laughs> so he took it to Wasserman, and they, they flipped out the whole idea of a new way to pr promote it. So definitely I got the job to direct uh, Jaws 3D. Well, the problem was uh, the camera stuff was really old. Uh, and Alan said, we got to start shooting. And he didn't want to build a shark. I said, we got to build a shark. No, no, I got a lot of shark footage. He just wanted to use, he, he really wanted to make it cheap. Uh -huh. And I said, no, I've got Simon McCorkendale. So in like the reuse the old shark footage from the other movies or like there's footage of sharks? Well, anyway, no, we didn't. Uh, we built sharks. We built a, a 35 foot section because Simon is in it holding the thing. Uh, but um, Jim Cotner was my cameraman and, and he, he was great. But the, but the first week we started shooting with this old stuff, he called it the ultra jam because it just kept jamming up and the convergence. Was, so, but, it, you know, Alan being TV guy, you know, got to start shooting. So we had uh, Aeroflex make us new cameras, 3D cameras, underwater cameras. Um, and uh, I had nice people. Dennis was good. And Leah Thompson, I gave her her very first job, you know, and uh, it was a hard shoot. It was a hard shoot because of the convergence, you know, and you'd come back in daily and say, oh, my God, you didn't get that. And, uh, and Landsberg was always there trying to tell me how to direct. And I, I got it. Scott Mayton was my sec first assistant director. He's about 6'5". I says, when Alan comes on the set, you just keep him away from me. So uh, it was a struggle. But, Neil, the, the biggest disappointment was I cut the movie the same length as uh, Jaws 1 and 2, about two hours. Mm -hmm. And Landsberg got a hold of it. I didn't have final cut. And if you don't have final cut in Hollywood, forget it, because they could do whatever they want to the movie. And uh, he cut uh, 25 minutes out of it, because that way they could get five screenings a day instead of four. Mm -hmm. And so some of the critics said that I expedited the movie too quick, didn't show enough relationships. Uh, I did, but, you know, it was cut. Uh, so um, the movie was, you know, uh, the critics uh, were not too happy with it. But I must say, a lot of young filmmakers, or not young now, uh, Jaws 3 was a huge thing. And I still get a lot of reaction from Jaws 3 because it was a time where... You know, they they are at the age that they could go and see the movie, you know, 12, 13 years old. So uh, it was well received and made a lot of money. Uh, the, the fourth one didn't do well. Uh, and uh, so, but yeah, all three, but I was, I, you know, I had nothing to do with the fourth one. I, I was sort of jawsed out. Right. <laughs> Uh, Robert in the chat, Robert Fresi, just want to know, uh, was there any uh, advancement in the uh, creation of the shark for better or for worse uh, from the third, from the first movie to the third one? Advancement? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, let me just say this. On the second one, um, John Hancock, the, 
were they hired to direct it. I was just finishing uh, Close Encounters uh, in Mobile, Alabama. And incidentally, I used to go on Sundays with this girl that had greyhound dogs. She used to run them on the streets in Pensacola. And I said, God, if we ever did a Jaws 2, this would be the place to do all the water stuff because there's just beautiful beaches and no boats out there. I mean, it was, you know, in the, in the Gulf. So anyway, I got back and, and uh, I hear they're doing Jaws 2. And, uh, you, you know, I wasn't involved. Uh, the thing was in 1941. And then, so when I came on, they had, they had been working. They got Bob, Bob Maddie back, but they were doing it in-house at the studio. Now, the first set of three Jaws cost $250,000 to make. On Jaws 2, when I got back, they were working on it. They were doing it in the studio. They'd already spent $2 million because they were just charging money. Oh, it's charge it to Jaws, charge it to Jaws. Uh, and then John Hancock had this idea that the, the shark was going to flip and do all this stuff. And Bob uh, would do whatever, you know, the director, what, excuse me. Uh, so I sort of like calmed it down and uh, started doing the storyboards and you know, what we needed. And I went scouting with, with John and a really nice guy, but he, he, he while he was preparing Jaws 2, he wanted to do a play with Tennessee Williams. So I met Tennessee, that was a big, oh wow, Tennessee Williams, you know. Yeah. He was doing a play in LA. I said, but John, you've got so much to prepare, you know, I mean, we got the shark, we got this, you know, Edgar Town, all that stuff. So uh, we started shooting, and uh, Tom Joyner went from assistant director to production manager. And first day of shooting, it was three o'clock, and John wanted to rap, and it was just kids on the on the wharf. And he said, "Oh, you know, it's difficult. I'm not quite sure." I said, "John, if this is difficult, wait to what you know we get to with the shark." Anyway. I started doing second unit, uh, walk and talk stuff, uh, people, background stuff. And he worked with the kids. Uh, then I went down because, as I said, we were gonna just do the walk and talk stuff, Martha's Vineyard, and then all the all the shark stuff we were gonna do in Martha's Vineyard, was we, uh, we had done Martha's Vineyard, we were gonna do in uh, Florida. So I had a crew down there and then uh, I heard they fired John and uh, they were going to shut down the movie. Mm -hmm. I came back and, uh, and then uh, I went to talk to Ned Tannen and he says, oh, do you and Verna want to direct you know, the second one? I said, that would be a pretty good idea because I'd have the editor, you know, and we would, but the director's guild wouldn't let us do that. You know, you couldn't fire somebody and then, have like the cameraman take over. So there was this director, Janot Schwartz, that did uh, a number of night galleries. And I liked what he did. And so I introduced him to Verna and to, so he came aboard. So then uh, we took the shark and we sort of streamlined the mechanism we had a lot of experience. The big problem we had on the first one was salt water eats up electronics. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
the problem was with the shark on the second one wasn't that we had any problems. It all worked. It's just that the studio thought they were, they were now influencing everybody. And they wanted more and more and more shark. Because if Jaws was a big success with the shark we used, if we used more shark, it would be big. You know, not the right concept. Mm-hmm. But I did a lot of shark with the shark breaking through the transom of the kids on the boats and stuff. And so, it, it, yeah, the, the shark worked fine, uh, but things happened. For an example, I directed a sequence where the shark grabs a helicopter. And it, it's just amazing. You go out there and it takes eight o'clock, you're out there and... By the time you anchor the effects boat, the camera boat, uh, this, and then they anchor this helicopter. And I thought, gee, a shark eating a helicopter, but it had pontoons, so it really looked like a seal, you know, mm-hmm. two seals. And we made fiberglass blades. So the first day, we're all set. After three hours, they start up the helicopter, and what happened was the blades flip, it flipped over. And the next day, the shark turned and it grabbed the camera boat. And then, the yeah, that's the second day. The third day, it finally went, grabbed the helicopter, and it was perfect. So nothing's easy on this ocean. <laughs> but the shark, the shark worked uh, incredibly, you know, on, on the second one. It's just they wanted so much. And then uh, with the director and Bruno, they, they cut it you know, less sharp. So anyway. Was, was directing uh, something you wanted to continue to do? Uh, oh, you mean after? Uh, after yes. After Jaws 3D? I had a, I had a script called Adventure One. Uh, and uh, we were based in Utah because that's where the finances were coming. And it was a futuristic uh, film. And I worked on it for seven months. And... Uh, it was a you know sci-fi uh, going to another planet where you had the same characters are here but they had a different persona mm-hmm. and it was pretty interesting. Uh, but then one day the producer came in and said the money in Japan ran out and yeah, that was that and uh, and a number of projects I got to tell you uh, you know you only hear about the ones that happen and uh, so many directors have these projects that you work on and then for some reason you can't cast it or, you know, uh, the money falls out. And so uh, that went on uh, until, um, oh, I did, uh, in between I did Starman. John asked me to design Starman. I said, no, I'm really interested in directing thing. But he said, okay, come in and direct the second unit and do the design concept. So I designed a spaceship and then I went and shot uh, the the car coming from Monument Valley and all that mm-hmm. stuff. You know. So yeah. it's um, yeah, yeah and then, go, yeah go on sir yeah go ahead no that was it you know. oh I was gonna say you know you said John if people know it's John Carpenter and uh, uh, what was that like to work with John Carpenter Escape from New York because I believe that's a lot lower budget film than than after you do to uh, you know um, Close Encounters of Third Kind. Let me tell you it, 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 real quick uh, I was. Uh, scouting a movie I was going to do called Out in Front about Formula One racing. And I had uh, raced for a number of years, Formula Two cars. And so it was a subject I was really close to. And it went all over Monte Carlo, France, England, whatever. And I got back and the studio that was going to do it 
had sold, been sold. And uh, then two weeks later, my father died. And it was like, and then so my agent, Phil Gers, called me and he said, Joe, you got to go back to work. You got to decide. I've got this young couple, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, they're, you know, were his clients. He said, why don't you meet with them? They're going to do a movie. I think you get along with them. So I came on, I met John, and John has had done, you know, Halloween and the fog and nothing over $300,000. And I think they had five or six million for this, huge, you know, for there. So uh, I said, okay, this, this could be fun. So it was a little, uh, John is very relaxed, very, you know, yeah, okay, it was cool. Deborah was a real go-getter. I mean, oh, she, she passed away much too young. But she, we became really good friends. She'd come over the house and stuff. I remember Jamie Lee Curtis with her. They were good friends. And so I had a good relationship with her. And I was more aggressive than John. I said, we've we got to start scouting this thing. We need, uh, we need a bridge uh, with a wall, or, or we need a wall and then add a bridge. And so and Barry uh, Bernardi was the location guy. So we started looking all over, and we found this, this bridge in St. Louis. Oh, first of all, John and, and uh, Larry Franco, who was the first assistant, we went to uh, New York, and we went to the top of the, the towers, Twin Towers, and we looked at New York, and we said, oh, we can't deal with New York. Too, too big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So we didn't shoot New York. We shot one thing in New York. Anyway, so I, I kept pushing, pushing. We, so we found this plane in St. Louis. And so we found this bridge, good-sized bridge, but nobody was using it. So I built this 200-foot wall. And uh, so then I found downtown St. Louis is under urban renewal, and it was just incredible. Old buildings we could really, you know, mess up. So Claudia was the decorator. We just brought tons of garbage in every night and shot that. The, uh, the thing that uh, was great was uh, we shot one day in uh, New York. Uh, it was uh, Statue of Liberty. So I had built the whole government, you know, area uh, with these sort of A-shaped buildings. And I had an entrance way, and that was a military uh, area. Anyway, we took that one building and just to save money, this is how we did it. We put it on a truck, folded it up, drove across the country, took the last ferry out to, to, uh, to the island uh, so we didn't have to pay for a special boat. We set the thing up and um, so it was just great. We, so we shot, what, what's his name? I can't remember right now. Uh, the actor coming Kurt down. Russell? No, no, no. That wasn't Kurt. This was a guy that uh, he, he just walks through uh, and pardon? Who there? No, no. No, it wasn't Lee Van Cleef. Uh, I'll think of his name. Anyway, he was just one of the guys did the thing. And he came down and he walked through the, the checkpoint and he panned. And what, what uh, Dean Cundy did is as he got through the U.S. Police Department thing, he, he hit an area of black and he, he cut. And we 
took the whole thing back to the U.S. He measured the distance, had his speed, set the camera up again against the black, and then we came out and we were in L.A. So we went cut from New York to L.A. without any visual effects, just a cut from black to black. And, and Dean kept was perfect. He was such a great, he is a great camera. So the pan, you know, went across it. So anyway, that's what we shot in New York. And then we just found that St. Louis worked for us in the train station. And um, we pretty much uh, shot that. And then we're back in LA and, and shot the sets and some of them, you know. Uh, but it was uh, it was interesting. Oh, I got it. So I needed a plane crash. And I went to... Um, I went to Arizona where they have all these old planes and collections of planes. And I started to think, okay, I need a wing. I need this. I need that. And, and I was making a list of what I was going to ship to, uh, to St. Louis. And then the guy said, you know, there's a plane in St. Louis, uh, DC eight that they're selling. It's not working, but you know, I said, where is it? And he says in St. Louis. So I went and I bought this plane. It was DCA, but I took the props off and I cut it in three pieces. And we, at night, so we didn't have to get permission. We did all these things. And then we did this shot of Kurt Russell walking by the crashed plane and we set it on fire. And then we do take two. And I tell Roy to put the fire out. And he says, I can't, it's magnesium. It's gone. So anyway, uh, that worked out. So, you know, I bought this plane for three or four thousand dollars or something like that. So it was like um, interesting uh, going back to, you know, saving money. And um, right. and uh, Kurt was uh, was great. Anyway, that's. Yeah, that's me. Uh, Tristan, do you have a question, sir? Uh, I, I'm wondering, you've worked on so many epic films. I'm, I'm wondering which one you would consider to be your most challenging. I think they're all challenging. I mean, it, in a different way. Uh, either I had great communication with Stephen, so that relationship worked out. Um, and uh, obviously Jaws was very, very challenging for, because I was in a different position as an art director. I, I really was responsible for getting the effects department. Normally the production designer doesn't have that much to do with it, but physically every day is a shark working. Close Encounters, obviously the big set. Uh, Escape from New York, budget considerations. Um, Geronimo was another very, very difficult. Uh, I, I built a huge, huge uh, encampment or, you know, and uh, the director didn't shoot a master shot of that sort of upset me uh, because I, you know, it was, anyway, um, yeah, the, the, I, I can't say that there was any one that was more challenging. Every time you get a script, it's a challenge. And to what degree, it's how much money you have, where are you going to do it? Uh, are we going to do it in location? We're going to do it uh, uh, locally. Uh, we're going to build or we're going to find something. So, you break it down, and uh, then the budget, of course, dictates how much you can do, you know. 
Uh, Robert Perez wants to know how you got involved in Forbidden Planet and if you can talk about doing the uh, the illustrations. Boy, that was that was something. Okay, I'll try. I don't know how much time you have, but um, much time as you like. So let's get anyway. I, I went. Uh, it was my second year of school. I was eighteen because I graduated high school. I just turned uh, seventeen. I was sixteen to my senior year and went to San Jose State. And then I went down. I wanted to get to Hollywood. I wanted to, you know, do uh, movies. Uh, anyway, Jerry. Hang on, there's a phone. Yeah. Take your time. Okay. So I went to Chouinard's, which was an incredible art school and it specialized in production designing, uh, you know, or the designing productions. Hello, this is Mr. Joe. This is Aaron with the DK Project. We do a podcast here in Minneapolis. Oh, I've got somebody talking. Can we just wait a second? Okay, I'm sorry. That's okay. Don't be. No, You're no. fine. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, uh, I go to Shinar's my first, second year at school and uh, studying designing movies. Uh, and uh, it's summer and I, I want to stay in LA. I don't want to go back to, I'm from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, met this uh, fraternity brother from San Jose State and uh, talked to him and he says, oh, my wife's father works at Disney. Maybe you can get a job. And I just turned 19 uh, and I said, I don't think I'm ready yet. You know, I mean, I've got, and he said, well, bring your portfolio, see what we could do, what we could do. So I, I show up with my portfolio and he looks at it and he says, um, well, you're too late for the training program. They have a training program. Uh, and I don't know how many weeks it, or a month that they train you to draw Mickey Mouse and all that. And the normal procedure at Disney is training program and then you become an in-betweener for a year or two. And then if you're fortunate, a breakdown artist for another couple of years and then assistant animator. And then if you're there forever, then you become an animator. So he said, uh, too late for the training, but I could put you special effects. So I said, okay. So I go into this room and there's this lady, Marion, and I said, what do I do? And she says, there's a white uh, a light board there. And she says, you flip the pages and draw in between. I said, oh, okay, I could do that. Now, what happened was she's working for Dwight Carlisle, who's working for Josh Metter, who is the king animator of effects. He did the Nine on Ball Mountain. He did the Fire and Bambi. And he's got a contract. They have a contract uh, for, from uh, Disney to do a, a drawing, to do a, a creature uh, for uh, Forbidden Planet, for MGM movie. And so Dwight's working with uh, Josh, and she's working with Dwight. And then so after a while, we're drawing this thing on these big cinemascope papers, and not the, this, you know, four by three by four, it's big, and you're flipping. And, and then she, after a couple of weeks, she said, I have to leave. What, you just work directly with Carl. So I start working with Carl. 
So I mean, I jumped right away after a, a month or two being a, a breakdown artist with the assistant to the big animator. And I'm working for him for a few weeks and he has to go to the hospital. And so now I'm assisting Josh Benner, 19 years old, and I'm drawing the id. And it wasn't a thing where you draw and you ink and paint it. We had to render every, every cell, every drawing. We had a, the inner, the hot and the, the cooler part of the, the id. So now uh, I'm assisting him and I'm handing work out to other people. And I'm now I'm an assistant after three, four months, which generally takes years. And uh, so that, that was a, a great learning process. And then I went on and I worked on Sleeping Beauty. And I'll just tell you this story real quick. I'm working on Sleeping Beauty and there's a fairy. She's holding a, a cookie. And this guy reaches over and he says, no, no, the cookie should look like this. And it's Walt Disney. And Walt would physically come and, and work on your drawings with you. So yeah. that was, uh, anyway, that was my Disney experience. I was there for a couple of years, but I, I really wanted to do live action. And so I went off and worked on a, a live theater to do sets. So. Mm -hmm. uh, was there any like uh, jealousy from your other uh, animators that, you know, you went, you know, so far, you young? I think there was a, a little irritation. There were some younger people, but I, I guess I was uh, pretty lucky. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a couple of years, uh, I wasn't treated as well as, as they, you know, the thing about movies like that, if you're part of a big studio, when they have a big film, everybody's busy. When that ends up, then they started, uh, I should say, eliminating a lot of people because they, the, the crews are smaller because they don't have a big project until they get another project. So I, I, it was just towards the end, I think, you know, I really, I really think I want to go off and do something else, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it was an interesting experience. Most people that were at Disney, they were pretty much there, you know, for their life. Yeah. And uh, you could be an assistant animator and be there for, for years. And maybe your big deal would be an animator and you'd, draw Mickey Mouse or something. Yeah. You know? Well, you mentioned uh, uh, Spielberg and, and John Carpenter, but another, you know, uh, iconic director you worked with uh, at a young age would be Alfred Hitchcock. What was that experience like on Torn Curtain? That was, uh, I was an assistant uh, uh, art director. Uh, Frank Arrigo was my sort of mentor. I, I really, I loved Frank thinking because Frank came from Review, uh, who eventually bought Universal. So there are a lot of television guys. So I was doing a lot of television. And Frank, when he was at Review, he also had directed a lot. So he taught me how to think as a director, you know, when you're designing sets, not just worry about all the little fancy details. Think about how it's going to be shot, what's most important angles and stuff like that. So I started assisting him and I learned a lot. We did a change of habit was Elvis Presley's last movie. Wow. And uh, so uh, I was fortunate. I worked with Mick Jagger and Elvis Presley, you know, big uh, icons in the yeah. uh, music business. Anyway, so he got this uh, job on a torn curtain and uh, Heine Heckroff was a, a German production designer that came to do the ballet sequences because he had done 
red shoes, ballet, and all that stuff. Really, really nice guy. So basically, uh, Hitchcock, and I'll have to explain this. Hitchcock had been an art director in England before he became a director. And I remember one day he, uh, Mary, no, uh, Peggy, his assistant, uh, called me and said, Mr. Hitchcock wants to see you. And I says, where's Frank? Or where's, uh, you know, I'm, oh, they're out. But, you know, Hitch wants to talk to you. Because I would just see him in the morning. We would go to the coffee, coffee and donuts, and, you know, before we shoot, and he'd have his black tie and black suit. And we all wore sport coats and ties at that time. Everybody, you know, if you're in that position, you wore coats. Anyway, we'd have coffee, and he would tell bad jokes. I mean, not funny at all, but... <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, so he calls me and he says, um, Joe, he says, and he's drawing like a, with a pencil, but it was like a worm crawling on the page. You know, he never lifted it up. He says, Mr. Newman, Paul Newman, runs down here to these stairs and runs down the stairs. Mr. Whitlock will do a matte painting up here. And then he comes out of the stairs and he goes over to the registration desk and he leaves. I says, okay. So he says, I want you to build that and build this. I said, well, what about the reverse shot? What about this? No, no, no. Just build what I'm going to shoot. And that was Hitchcock. We built half the sets because he knew what he wanted. He was so individual that by the time he shot it, it was like, okay, well, you know. Uh, so that's how he worked. It was... Uh, some directors, you build everything and then they decide how they're going to shoot it and they shoot half of what you've already designed and it's a waste of money. But, but he was, uh, yeah, that, that was Hitchcock. Uh, he, he, uh, he didn't want to waste anything. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Night Gallery a couple times. So what's the difference between uh, doing you know, a feature film and doing a series where I assume you'd have to do different things every, you know, for each episode. Well, you could do a feature film and basically have, uh, those different, you know, a half I guess a dozen sets, yeah. 12 sets, dozen sets. I was doing 25 sets a week. And because we would do either two or three episodes. And at the first season, we had different directors for each one. So I'd have to meet with two or three directors for that week and, and build sets. And a lot of sets I would steal or borrow from standing sets at the studio. And there's a staircase. So Vincent Price comes on the staircase. Okay, we'll, we'll use it this time. Next time we'll use it, we'll, we'll change the color or we'll do something else. So you, you have to run around and, uh, you know, just steal things, borrow things. But I did build uh, a couple really big sets. Uh, and uh, it, it, yeah, it was just, it was constant. It was constant. I'd go home or I'd go have a drink and I'd be sketching the thing on a napkin, you know, let's see what I'm going to do tomorrow. Yeah. And, um, we had uh, some pretty impressive people that did the night galleries, uh, Edward G. Robinson and, you know, people like that. Um, Lawrence Harvey, uh, I remember a quick story that I've got you here. We did a thing, uh, Lawrence Harvey, Janelle Sharp is a director. Uh, they, it was called the, the Caterpillar. And it was, I built this set in Borneo 
really turned out well, like a jungle. And the, the caterpillar goes into Lawrence Harvey's ear and he freaks out. So I'm sitting next to Rod Seiger, Janosh Worker. We're all about the same height, mid five, six or something. And I'm talking to, to Rod and uh, I'll never forget this. I said, Rod, this is amazing. I, I don't know how you, you write all these night galleries and twilight zones and how the hell, you know, you could do this. And he turns to me and he says, yeah, I write them, but you make them happen. And I thought, what? He said, yeah, you take the words and make them visual. You know, it says staircase. You've got to go find a staircase or build a staircase. He, he pans over there and he looks out this window and there's this, and you've got to find the window or the location or a backdrop to fit. So that was, how do I say, one incredible thought that he, I mean, yeah, you know, to have Rod say that was, yeah. for, and I missed a lot of respect too. Yeah. And I mentioned this at the art director's guild. I said, you know, that's what we do guys, girls. Uh, we do take the words and we make them physical. Obviously we have the influence of the director uh, and other people, uh, but we're responsible or you're going to show up at a stage and it's going to have nothing in it, right? Mm -hmm. Or even a location, finding the right location and uh, all the other things that go with the location, uh, you know. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was very satisfying. Uh, do you mind if I ask a couple questions here from the chat room? Sure, no problem. Um, Robert Perez wants to know, uh, what did you do on Puffin Stuff? H&R Puffin Stuff. Uh -huh. Oh, God. Mama Cass was in that. It was interesting. There was a uh, art director. I was assistant art director. And he came. He was not from the studio system. And we had to build a cave. And, and the way, uh, you know, so the fact that he's not from the studio, uh, and I knew all the ins and outs of the studio system and, and the building and stuff, uh, that was sort of left up to me. He'd say what he wanted. So I said, oh, we're going to build caves. So we normally would build caves with chicken wire and plaster and stuff like that. And he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. I said, what are we going to do? He says, we're going to use carving foam. I said, what? What's carving foam? Well, let me tell you, that was a big break. That's a huge change in everything we did in, in Hollywood is this carving foam is pretty expensive. And you carve it like a, a stone. And so we weren't plastering it and doing that. We, we made it, we cut them out of, uh, out of you know, this, uh, this, this foam, this rigid foam. When we did Close Encounters, we did 14,000 square feet of rock, but we made certain ones and then we made fiberglass molds and then we just kept making that. But anyway, so anyway, that was it. I made the, uh, I worked on the cave. Or, uh, that Mama Cass sits in front of. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, okay. actually. Uh, there's another uh, 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 music legend. Uh, AJ Zyla wants to know, uh, do you think uh, Jaws would have been different if Robert Duvall had been cast as Chief Brody? <clears throat> Robert Duvall. I, I didn't hear about Robert Duvall. There was uh, a number of other people... Uh, that were being considered. Uh, guy that I did, uh, what's his name? No, uh, well, I, well, I think 
whoever did it, it wouldn't have Robert Duvall, Robert Shaw brought something to it. First of all, he's an English actor, and but you never got that feeling of being an English actor. What happened was this: uh, we had uh, a boat guy, um, Lynn Murphy, and a really cranky old guy. And when I was building the the, uh, the set, Quint Shack, he had a little shack where all the fishermen had these little shacks where they keep their fish there. And he was bitching. Oh, you guys are wrecking this, you're building that. I said, you're a, you're a boat guy, yeah? Yeah. I said, we need a really good boat guy to tow the shark. Really? I says, yeah, you know, it'd be a pretty good job. So he went over there and he actually helped with the dive planes and all that. So he did all the towing. Anytime the, and he had uh, Susan Murphy, he was a very young lady, went to Vassar, it was assisting him. But he talked really crazy. So So he and Shaw used to go drink every night. And so Shaw picked up his persona. So it was interesting because he he just fell right into the area, being such a good actor. I mean, that wasn't really Robert Shaw at all. So I I don't know. uh, Different actors would have a, a different Richard Boone would be, I thought Richard Boone would do it. He would be considered, but it would be Boone, you know. Um, so it's always a I, weird question because we're for, we, we know these roles already, so it's hard to think of someone else playing it. It would, you know, just be a different take on it. Well, if yeah, someone well, else played it, we might ask, couldn't you know, how could Robert Shaw have played this role? You know? Yeah, and, and what about Dreyfus? What if it was a different kind of uh, the Dreyfus character? You know, it was interesting, he didn't quite want to do the movie. He had done Dunley Kravitz, and it, 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 he was thought it was Wilson. And Stevens sort of talked him into doing. Oh, I don't want to do a shark movie. You, know, you got to realize uh, the reason Shaw got it because of the sting. Because when these other people, some people turned it down or couldn't do it, um, then I think. So. Sorry, phone. That's okay. Okay, you're very popular. Yes. <laughs> I'm not getting, know. no one's calling me. So. Somebody, <laughs> somebody's selling something. Uh, so, uh, let's say, uh, we're, we, with Dreyfus. Uh, yeah, so Dreyfus didn't quite want to do it. I mean, as I say, this. This wasn't really a popular movie, you know, like uh, there were some big movies being made and, and we were ignored. I mean, this was the thing, take it off the lot, uh, find a crew in New York. And uh, so I took, I took a painter and a carpenter. That was it. And so when we had a lot of problems on the island because we were there in the way of the summer vacation, a lot of the select people, they weren't happy with us being there, except Stephen was smart enough to put them in the movie. Mm -hmm. So they became, the mayor became this and that. So now they're part of the group. And since I only had a painter and a carpenter to build Quint Shack, to build the boat, I used local. And the locals, carpenters, I got boat people to build boats, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Quint Shack, carpenters. So the union pretty well uh, was good. They didn't interfere with me except the camera union. 
the camera union, uh, New York camera union were, were terrible. Uh, they, uh, when we were exchanging, we had Jaws 1 and Jaws 2, the Jaws, I mean, uh, Orca 1, Orca 2. The Orca 2 would sink and come back. And so we were taking props from one to the other. And my boat guys were doing it. And the uh, New York uh, camera people said, they're not going to shoot because that guy's not a union guy. He's a local. We can't shoot when they're locals. So that was a pain in the butt. Also, the... The Teamsters, you mentioned it. What happened? Yeah, the yeah. Um, I would. I had a. They had a car, a little pickup that I would be driven around in. But from where I was staying, I had to go down to the beach. It was easier to take my bicycle because there was just crowds of people because it was uh, that time of the year. Yeah, as someone on the Cape, I know about the traffic here on the Cape. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, what's his name now? He called me over and he said, Alice, what's with the bicycle? I said, I ride the bicycle. He said, no, you have a car. Uh, and I said, but I want to ride the bicycle. He said, no, you got to have the car with you. I said, okay. So I said, the car could follow me in my bicycle. <laughs> I was really arrogant, you know. <laughs> So I would be pedaling my bicycle and here would be the pickup behind me and here would be traffic. And this went on uh, till it got a big thing, Joe riding the bike. And I, I guess I was being stubborn because mm-hmm. it made no sense to me. So he really got up all the way up to Lou Wasserman. Joe wants to ride his bicycle. Yeah, he has a right to ride the bicycle. We're, we're paying the driver. Uh, every day, whether he sits in the car or not, uh-huh. you know, so let him, so, yeah, the, uh, I can't remember his name, because he freaked out when we did Jaws 2, and, and, and I limited the shooting to just a couple weeks there, uh, he says, how come you're not shooting the whole movie here? I said, because of you, you know, I told the driver, the, uh, Pickup driver, yeah, Bratton, Billy Bratton, Billy Bratton. He ended up going to jail for something. Oh, okay. But see, they were difficult. He's not watching this. Yeah. Pardon? I said, hopefully he's not watching this and doesn't hold any resentment yeah. towards you. It's been a long time. I don't. Know. Not too many people around. It's been uh, forty-five years, you know. Um, AJ, uh, he wants to know. This is an interesting question. If you could cast anyone to play yourself in making the monster, who would it be? <laughs> no, that's interesting because I, I saw the guy that they cast for uh, for the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, any actor today? Yes, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not that familiar with a lot of the young actors. But he would have to have. Uh, that's the way I used to look like. Okay, black beard, curly hair. You know. Uh-huh. You kind of look like Dreyfus in the movie a little bit. <laughs> that's, yeah, Dreyfus and Jaws. Yes. Yeah, well, we're about the same size. Yeah. And uh, here's the last one, the last words. Uh, Jamie wants to know if you have any Robbie the Robot stories. Not really, because other than Robbie the Robot was designed by Bob Kenosha. Bob Kenosha gave me my first job as a set designer when I was trying to make the transition from art from uh, animation to a set designer, junior set designer at Ziv Studios called on a thing called uh, 
uh, what was a science fiction thing. I can't remember. Bill Lundigan on the, Anyway, it, it was the sci-fi, and his studio doesn't exist anymore. But it was just funny that Bob, I n- never knew when he designed that, we became friends. He lived 104, just died a couple of years ago. Uh, but he designed the robot. Uh, and so the robot's here, and, we're, and that's MGM, and we're off doing, you know, we're at uh, Culver, you know, in uh, Birdbank at the studio, they're in Culver City, we're in Burbank. So we never never really got on the set. It's a separate thing. Yeah. Were you a movie fan uh, before you got into making movies? Okay, I'll give you a story. Uh, I got more stories. Um, How I got interested, because I could always draw from the time I was like three or four or five. I could draw and I was just, I played piano when I was nine, had a little band. Uh, but I went to the, probably 14 years old, went to local theater, Hayward Theater, with a, a girl, uh, same class, up the street, and we went and we saw uh, American in Paris. And we came back uh, at night, early evening, dancing, and so Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron, American in Paris. And then I found out it wasn't made in Paris at all. It was all made on MGM Backlot the studios and uh, and then I found out who's Cedric Gibbons who's the art director they're responsible and I thought wow that's a cool job to have creating Paris and the back lot and all that so I started becoming aware of what the art directors did William Cameron Menzies uh, who did uh, uh, let's see he got the first production, Gone with the Wind, and then he, he also directed. But I, I started becoming aware of, of that department and what they were responsible for. So when I went to college, I, I knew I had to learn architecture. So I majored in architecture and minored in, in drama. And so I would get uh, that feel of it. So that's, that's it. Uh, uh, but, you know, I liked the movies of the time, you know, the, the 50s. Yeah. Very good. So this has been a real honor to have you on the show. I've really enjoyed talking. I'm sure both of us enjoy talking. With you. Talk too much. I think I've talked. No, to I think it's... we love your stories. Exactly. We're so grateful for them. Yes. Thank you. All right. Well, remind the group to buy my book. Yes. Amazon. Well, art. Well, the reason I'm not putting it's not so much about me. It's really about what's behind making a movie mm-hmm. you, you know and, and uh, the various people that you don't hear about books are generally written about actors directors uh, sometimes the writers who write about it but very few about the cameraman or, or the designer mm-hmm. and and that's sort of the beginning you know of how it's done so uh, that, that was uh, it kind of goes back to what you said Rod Serling told you you guys are yeah, the ones that yeah. make this happen all right. Well, very good. Yeah, it's been great. I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. Take care. Nice talking yeah. to you. You as well. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The tomb of Nick Cage. Oh,